What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Alibach, and welcome to episode two of the podcast where we get into what's really good in the world. <laughs> For today's episode, I got to sit down with one of my favorite people on the planet, Mike Fluger. Mike is a high school teacher at the U School in Philadelphia, which is essentially a school that uses more innovative and creative tools to help students learn on a more one-to-one basis, and it inspires creativity and just prepares them more for post-high school life versus some of the more traditional uh, curriculums in high school that tend to stamp out a lot of students' love for learning early on, and they don't really prepare a lot of students, you know, for what comes after high school. So it was super interesting hearing his thoughts on all that, and yeah, Mike is just honestly one of the smartest people I know. So anytime I get a chance to talk to him is great because I feel like I'm getting smarter just by being in the same room. So uh, yeah, he just has a ton to offer on topics of education, uh, futurism, AI, and just a whole mess of good stuff. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you all take something from it as well. So now get ready to hear what's really good. And we're live. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. We've, we've talked about doing this for for years. So this is a real treat to uh, finally get to speak with you with microphones. I know. It's much more unnatural than I could have imagined. Right? <laughs> in a good way. In the best way possible. I feel like the best conversationalist when they get in front of a microphone, it's almost like deers in a headlight. Like you're used to yeah, sitting. Way to just... jinx this. <laughs> <laughs> like you're used to just sitting with somebody at lunch and there's just no stakes. Like it's literally just, oh, we're just hanging out. I can fumble my words and say whatever I want. But then you put a yeah. microphone of someone and all of a sudden... Every word counts. Yeah. Well, it's live music versus recorded music. That's exactly what it like is. Like live, you get away with all the little, you know, nuances and mistakes. Yeah, your Eastern because... could be a little out of tune. Yeah, it could but... be a little out of tune. In fact, it's recommended sometimes. <laughs> like, keep people guessing. Just give that real authentic feel. That's, yeah. That's what the people want. But then you record it and it's like, maybe it's just like it's in your mind that someone is going to hear this more than once and hear that mistake. You know, I think that's what several it is. Times. I, I was I was talking to our our friend Nelson about this the uh, the other day. Just how while you're recording and you're listening to your own voice in the headphones, you're so much more judgmental of everything you say because you're just constantly thinking about how it's going to be perceived by potentially one, two, two dozen, three hundred, however many people listening. And then all of a sudden, it's like, man, if I I was listening to somebody say that, I'd think, what an idiot. <laughs> so now that when it's you, all of a sudden it really matters what you say and how you say it. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's put that behind us. Yeah, and... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that it's super difficult to have this conversation. Yeah. So anyway, for folks who don't know, Mike, you're an educator in the Philadelphia School District. Do you want to give people a little background on what you do and what's what's going on? Yeah, for sure. So I work for a school in the Innovation Network in the School District of Philadelphia. And so basically the way I describe it is we're a charter school, but we're still a public school. So we yeah. get to do all the cool, you know, experimental type things that a charter school might do. Less testing, more projects, more of the, 
you know, fun things that you might see coming out of a charter school. But then we're still partially publicly funded. Um, we're non-selective. We invite all students from all over the city to come and participate in a non uh, in a non uh, selective uh, lottery process. So basically, it's not based on test scores, and they can come in and join our school and make make uh, make all their educational dreams come true. <laughs> so I've um, I've been teaching for a little while. I've taught in a few different contexts, um, and I'm by trade a mathematician, but I don't always like to lead with that because usually that's yep. a very polarizing statement. People like me, I'm just like, I hate math, but I love talking to you about math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's rightfully so because I think most people have, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it can go either way. It's either you have a good experience with it and you've succeeded at something that is kind of difficult or it just is terrible. And so I, I'm trying to think of a new way to frame it. Like, unfortunately, math magician is already taken. <laughs> you need like an at, you need an official name, like the math wizard. Just <laughs> Yeah, wizard's not bad. I like the idea of a wizard. Yeah, but... it's sort of goofy, but also prestigious. Like I know a lot. I'm right. wise. But it's yeah. also like if you can call yourself a wizard, you're probably funny. It also implies that you have a, a voluminous beard, and <laughs> I think those days are behind me. I don't have the concentration. Don't to, say that. I, I don't. I don't have the. I don't have the habits formed to to upkeep a beard One at this day. point in my life. Maybe a couple decades from now. Yeah, possibly, possibly. We'll <laughs> see. But anyway, yeah, I've I've gotten to study more math than I probably need to know ever. But I've enjoyed it, and I try to take. I guess. I guess what I would say is, I'm. I'm an artist and a musician. That's. That's what I really am, and I found a way to express my artistic creativity through math. Because you know, music really is just math, and I could give you a detailed yep. explanation, but yeah, you know, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, it's just I've heard. I've heard it said like. Um, or in, in the context of dancing, like dancing is counting without realizing that you're counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Everything, everything does come down to numbers. That is good in this world. I it guess. is. I mean, we're we're speaking to the potential internets right now through ones and zeros. So it's <laughs> very neat. Cool. So yeah. So right now, uh, like, how many you you teach multiple grades, right? Like at your school, like it's what is it? Like it's eight through twelve. Yeah, we're we're a normal high school. We have ninth through twelfth, and um, it's actually this is the fourth year of the school, and we've added one grade each year. So this is our first year with the seniors. Cool. And so it's uh, yeah, it's the mad rush at the end of the year to get all the seniors, yeah, <laughs> all the credits they need, and all the all the future plans that they need to take those next steps right yeah so what okay so like as this like you said like your school experiments and a lot of like newer educational methods so like are there any new um strategies or any like things that you guys have been projecting for these seniors now to like go like sort of transition from high school to college or high school to trade or whatever yeah well our school is founded upon the idea that 
we're we're not preparing you to necessarily learn some content, but we're preparing you to persist in what you do next. And so the motivation was there's a kind of discouraging stat that in the Philadelphia school district, 20%, only 20% of all students who go on to post-secondary pursuits like college Mm -hmm. persist past their first year. Oh, wow. So that means 80% of students who are going to college, if you're from the school district of Philadelphia, you're probably going to peace out after your first year. Yeah. And take, take, you know, healthy chunk of debt along with you and probably not a good option for paying that debt off. Yeah. So like, so you're saying like a persistence, like are there, um, is it just teaching? Are there things that you're projecting forth that are teaching kids like ways to get into the workplace or is there, is there any kind of, I guess what I'm asking, is there any kind of program or, or curriculum, I guess, set in place for the seniors or is it more just the sort of overall, like as they go through like the nine through 12, like they're overall kind of taught this, um, this mindset, I guess that you're saying to like persist through the post-education time. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the important things is to be what we call an autonomous learner where you take ownership of your learning. And so, um, along with that is the other A word, asynchronous. So I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Asynchronous, like, um, happening. So having learners learn at different paces. Okay. So instead of saying like, we have a test on Tuesday and then another test this coming Tuesday, you know, we, we have, here's, here are all the tests or all Mm -hmm. the performance tasks, um, or all the, all the projects that you need to do. And it's all listed. It's, it's clear what you're supposed to get done, but then you have, um, you know, kind of freedom in the pace that you're going to take to complete that. And so I think the difficult thing is, you know, you, you have to shift the way you look at it because what it can become, the bad thing that can happen is it's, I have all the time in the world to get my work done. And so I'm not going yeah, to procrastinate <laughs> and not do it until the last minute. It's, yeah. you know, and I think you, you may have had a college class like that where all the work is laid yep. out beforehand and then you don't, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do anything till the end. So you probably won't. Yeah. That's that for someone with my mindset, that's exactly what I do. You have a lot of the kids who are front runners and they, they look at mm-hmm. that and they run through the book and they get all of it done in the first couple of weeks. And then right. there's the people like me where I'm like, oh, I've got this and that going on. I'll just put this off till <laughs> it's far, far down the line as I can. And then you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what we don't want to happen. What we want is the exact opposite where, yeah. you know, here's everything you need to get done. Let's get this finished so that you can get to the things that you're really passionate about and the things that you want to do. So in the best case scenario, it looks like the students that we have who are, you know, using their extra time that they have to film documentaries or, you know, record a podcast or, you know, play music, do, do the types of things that, you know, unfortunately in the school district of Philadelphia, you don't have the funding to have an official yeah, class yeah. or curriculum for that. And instead, you know, you might be stuck taking algebra for an entire year. But we're saying, hey, you know, here are the things that you need to know for al- algebra. Um, and here are ways that you can show that you know this. So do those things, do them on your own time and do them quickly. And then you have freedom and, you know, resources to do the things that you really want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, like, when you look at the broader scope of students at a school like this, because is, is this your first uh, time teaching like this at this 
school particular? Do you teach at all before this? Yeah, I've I taught at a private school for a little bit. Um, it's a small private school, small class sizes, pretty much the polar opposite of most schools in in uh, Philly. Yeah, we're and then um, yeah. I taught for a year in South Africa through a Fulbright grant and. That was also its own unique experience because that was just like, you know, it was in a township. So giant classes, 90 students per class. Wow. Um, students waking up at three in the morning to walk two, three hours to school <laughs> to, you know, be there for 12 hours and then voluntarily staying longer after school. So, yeah, it was a <laughs> geez. Talk about completely different cultural mindset toward school. Like that's such a crazy <laughs> versus kids in this area where it's it's such a privilege i guess like on all scales where it's you know it's not really a thought of a place that you want to be at Mm -hmm. all whereas there i guess that's you're willing to walk that long like you that's the place you want to be more than anything else yeah exactly and i think all in all that's something that that we really don't do well in the u.s and it's just a it's a culture of education where and I I always like to think of it as like investment. Like our students just aren't they're not invested in the same way. Yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't have the same meaning. And it it it's almost like it it you think of it as this is my right. I have a right to education and then you become complacent and take it for granted and don't use it well. Whereas in South Africa, what you see is these kids who they didn't have the right to education for a long time. Yeah. And now that they finally have it, They're when you stoked. have the perspective, yeah. yeah, you're stoked when you have the perspective that like this isn't a given. Yeah. And this is something to be valued and treasured and like the opportunity to learn and stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Education. It's like it's a gift and it's something that you shouldn't take lightly. So do you think in, excuse me, do you think in like Western cultures, education system, like with the attitude shift there, do you think it's more of an institutional flaw, like built in, or do you think it's more of just kind of a cultural shift that's happened over decades of just generations having that right to education where it's just sort of become a part of the culture almost expected and something that is treated as mundane like kids don't want to go to school it's like it's just it's just been going on now for so long that we've almost lost uh sight i guess of the the meaning or like the the bullseye (laughs) well i would i would push back and i would say it's it's not so much that we've changed for the worse but i would say the world has changed the workplace has changed and you're dealing with kids going into a system that was designed for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Like compulsory education was started to prepare kids to work in factories. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it, it's just our, our, our environment is completely different. And to be honest, like school is pretty terrible. Yeah. Like school is, school is not fun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's usually in general, it's not fun. It's not yeah. enjoyable. Um, I'm not saying that makes it bad. There's lots of things that you need to do that aren't fun, but school usually isn't great. And I I was fortunate enough to have the experience of being homeschooled and you know, there's there's pluses and minuses for that. It's not it's not for everybody. Yeah. But um I didn't realize what I had until I went back and I did my student teaching while I was an undergrad and I just remember being shocked with how much time was wasted yeah. every single day. 
And you think, too, just all the subjects you learn that seem so wasted on so many kids. Like, like just the required curriculums, like going through grade school, then going into junior high and high school, how it stays almost completely static. Like, you're learning the same five or so subjects every single year. And a lot of times you just repeat them. Like, a lot of times you might yeah. learn you know, A, B, and C in history in sixth grade. And then by 11th grade, you're going back to that same A, B, and C, and you're just kind of resurfacing it. Like, oh, let's get this back in your head. Like, let's remember the Enlightenment. Like, let's mm -hmm. remember, you know, ancient Egypt. Let's remember civil rights. Like, whatever the era or the, the time period or, the, or the, um, the geography or whatever. Like, you're kind of just playing this stuff back, almost trying to get kids to memorize things that in, like, like you said, like it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have value, like just because it's difficult or um or not for everybody doesn't mean it's not great. Like, you know, certain things have to be in place as a generalized rule. But I think it says a lot now when you look at the um just the marketplace as a whole and you see these jobs emerging like <laughs> jobs like YouTubers and bloggers mm. and like all the jobs in tech and then you have all these like all, all the new sort of things that seemed futurist when we were growing up are now reality and school isn't, doesn't see if it is changing, it's changing. So at such a micro level, you know, like it's not changing mm. even close to as fast as the world is changing. So it's really, it's interesting to look back on education, whether it's grade school or high school or college and just think, you know, it's really, it just seems like it's not evolving with the world, you know? No, no doubt. It's definitely not. Um, it it's it's interesting also to see how you not only do you have students who are repeating work but the students who are most likely to repeat work are the students who are coming from you know uh, a high needs background or a background where they may have gone through trauma and so the whatever we're doing isn't working for them. And so the way we address it is by giving them the same course again. it's like, you didn't learn yeah. how to complete a square in algebra. Well, guess what? You get to do it again next year. It's almost like prison. <laughs> mm. Sort of. I mean, <laughs> in a weird yeah. way. I mean, it literally, you, you send, I mean, I, like, again, that's a whole deep conversation in and of itself, which we don't need to get into the complexities of like the mm -hmm. criminal justice system, but yeah. just on a surface level where we can all sort of, most people, I think, if you polled them nowadays, would agree that there's there's certain levels of offenses that are so minor that people get sent to jail over, and then it just becomes this repeat cycle where jail doesn't act in any way, shape, or form as a, a method of rehabilitation. So it's like you could go to jail for stealing you know, a Twix bar at a mm -hmm. convenience store, and I guess the idea of you getting sent to jail is we're going to teach this person not to steal Twix again. Right. But chances are that person when they get out is going to do something else in the same vein and just going to keep repeating like it's not it's 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 a similar thing i think where like i don't know like i wasn't you know i didn't have a traumatizing or awful experience in grade school but i also didn't have a great one like i just didn't i didn't learn i guess at the same pace as a lot of my classmates like i wasn't failing every class but like i was getting a lot of c's mostly c's some d's some b's once in a while you get an a and I think a lot of like like year after year, a lot of the um the courses that I was taking, that's sort of where I fell into. Like I my brain is way more I guess just all over the place. Like it's I don't know if it's a creativity thing or just a temperamental thing, but I have a very difficult time focusing 
on areas that I'm just not interested in. Like I would mm-hmm. just zone out and I'd have yeah. a really hard time doing assignments and doing homework and, and, do, and memorizing information for tests that I don't think is relevant to me. And I can do that. Like if, if, I, if I'm pushed to do that, I can do it sometimes. It's not like I can't like discipline myself to get it done. But when it's a year after a year of the same stuff, it really does wear on you. You know, like unlike what you're saying, which is really cool about the, I guess, the structure of your school where you do have some of the creative freedom to tinker a little bit with that per uh, the student, you know, because not every student is wired to be on that same timeline of uh, getting these assignments done. Right. And I think it's also interesting because there's this big push for STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, which, again, I I appreciate I appreciate those things. They're things that are near and dear to me and things that I enjoy studying. But they're they're presented as this lever to lift, you know, poor people out of their circumstances. Yeah. If they can just learn math or if they can just learn science, then they can have a viable career in in the world of tomorrow. And I'm not sure I really ag- agree with that totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a whole list of reasons why that is true. But the number one reason for me is motivation, because you can you can read all you want about best practices and education and good pedagogy and good curriculum. But if a student's not motivated and doesn't want yeah. to do or isn't invested in what they're learning, then it's it really is you're you're going to be fighting against so much momentum and you're not going to be helping that student. You're not yeah. going to be lifting them up in any way. And so it's I I almost want the opposite. I want less of those things and I want more, you know, more of the arts, more of the, you know, the, the things that are inherently engaging the music and the media and, um, all the things that are being cut from the the budget. (laughs) Yeah. All the things. And unfortunately the things that are harder to measure, Yeah, the things that can't be, you know, used to, uh, used to or the things that can't be tested as well so it again it does come back to money and and funding and yeah all those all those evil monetary yeah, yeah, issues because right? you can't teach like that's so interesting like you're saying if if a student's not motivated you're going to spend all your time trying to motivate them then you can't teach them because i mean motivation something i always tell people motivation's fickle because it's something that you can't really rely on. Like, that's why I think I, I make fun of those uh, Instagram people that just post motivational quotes all the time. And that's, and that's why I feel like that's why it's a stereotype to, to the people that do that, because usually the people that post are the people that need them the most. You know, and there's a, you look at the guys like Tony Robbins, and, you know, I don't, I guess I can't knock necessarily the out, like the results of what speakers like, Tony Robbins have have done over the years, you know, like what what they've accomplished and who they've helped, like that speaks for itself, I guess, on at some degree. But I think that audience is cultivated by people who just generally aren't motivated and don't know what motivates them. So they're right. looking to somebody or something to point them in the direction to get out of bed in the morning, which I think is incredibly difficult because there's like that there's like that. I don't know, the dichotomy, I guess, sort of between motivation and discipline where some kids are raised with more discipline and they're able to cultivate that into school 
into their relationships, into their workplace really well. But other kids, even if they are raised with discipline, they're whether it's temperamental or environmental, like they can't they can't wrestle that in a way that um that really is like reliable, I guess, for going through school. So when it comes to teaching kids, especially in troubled neighborhoods or especially in, you know, underprivileged areas and you're trying to get a kid to be motivated to do a project that they do not care anything about. Like mm-hmm. that's that's such a difficult place to be in as an educator, I'd imagine, just because what you can only push them so much to get and, and if the, you do motivate them on a Monday, by Friday they're probably not gonna care at all. So mm-hmm. it's like how do you how do you maintain like like you're saying like the arts are getting cut. It's like that's that seems to me you can't I don't know. I think there's a stereotype for most of the white-collared Americans who sort of build these institutions, there's a stereotype there where it's like, well, the arts don't make money. Well, I would argue that in in a certain nature is completely changed now, now that we have these massive tech companies emerging and, you know, companies like Apple, Netflix, um, uh, like GoPro, well, GoPro is not doing too hot recently, but I just think about, like, just the technologies that have been emerging the past few years and how if you're into whether it's videography or recording audio engineering type of stuff uh, music there's so many more outlets like this is a podcast like there's literally people now making a living recording jingles for podcasts like there's mm-hmm. there's avenues popping up all over the place there's not traditional and there's no way to tangibly i think measure the i guess the roi and the just generalized data on how many people are making a living off these jobs and i think it's a combination of you know it's easier to measure someone like you who you're getting paid a salary or an hourly wage a year and then you can say okay teachers you can you can kind of pile you into statistics and say teachers are making this much money a year as a general rule whereas a lot of these newer jobs in tech and the arts and all that if if I'm someone who does podcasting for a living, which I'm not, but if I was, you know, maybe I'd be doing podcasting, doing, you know, uh, music gigs on the weekends, doing, you know, video editing gigs the weeknights. Like you kind of have a hodgepodge of artsy stuff that you're kind of dipping your hands in everywhere. Right. And it's way harder to measure that in a, in a mode of success, I think, when, when you want to when you want to put that in front of somebody and say, give me funding to put this into schools. You right, know, you know. right. Yeah, well, part of the issue is, and the and the struggle I always have is, I'm I'm constantly looking into what's coming next. What's going to be here in the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty mm-hmm. years? And I try to read up on what are the what are the leaders in the tech industry saying about education, and what are they trying to do? And for a while, there's there's a lot of people who really put a lot of faith in in MOOCs, which are the multi or um, massive open online courses. Yeah, and like the uh, what's it called, like the Khan Academy? Is that sure? One of like them? Khan Academy, Coursera. Yeah. Um, more more so the the courses where you have a mass of people, maybe you know twenty thousand people taking the same course mm-hmm. at the same time online and interacting in a community as they learn some sort of skill. Um, and the idea was that, uh, so 25% of the world, 20, 25% of the world's children have access to education. The other, you know, the majority don't, and they don't have any way to learn at the same 
quality as as you know these select few yeah so like a lot of people thought like oh mooks are going to be the answer because all you're going to need to do is solve the problem of getting the hardware into their hands give them some sort of tablet a connection to the internet Mm. and you're going to have education there but mooks for the most part haven't worked at all and if you've ever taken one you've probably found that it's like You'll make it unless like someone's forcing you to take it. You'll yeah. you'll make it through like the first few weeks, and then you kind <laughs> of taper off. You just kind of taper off. Yeah, it's like the kid in the candy store effect when you first get in there because it's like I could take like songwriting or um, beatboxing or neuroscience, yeah. and then after like three weeks of like just watching, you know, five minute video clips, you're you're kind of burnt out and done, mm. but. Uh, I think what what we can start to do is take a page out of how has um, how has how have the tech companies really succeeded and and survived? And what's interesting is um, when you look at Apple, like what is it that really separated Apple and turned them from like you know a nerdy computer company into a luxury brand? And it's, it's it's counterintuitive. It's the Apple store. Mm-hmm. Like Steve Jobs had the foresight to build all these physical brick and mortar concrete buildings. And so you have this um, physical, tangible space where people can go and they can test out and see and yeah. feel an the experience. technology. It's yeah. an experience. And it's what it's what made Apple really take off because they didn't just have the the digital presence but they had the the physical um brick and mortar presence and i think the same thing is going to be necessary for schools to really harness technology well you're gonna, you're still going to have a building you're still going to have a place you're going to go to but it's going to look a lot different it's not going to look like a classroom with desks facing a teacher um with you know eight periods a day and eight subjects that someone else determined was good for you to learn. Like it's, it's really going to take on more of a, you know, here's, here's um, the resources that you need to do something that you might be interested in and take this and run with it and document what you're doing, share what you're doing, write about what you're doing. Uh, I think it's going to look a lot more like that. And um, I know the people who, and I mean, I see it myself. I'm in a place right now where we're trying those experiments and we're trying those things and we fail a lot. There's a lot of big failures. (laughs) Everybody's trying to figure it out. Everyone's trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure it out in a non-selective public school. Yeah. So you can imagine. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's it's never (laughs) ideal. But, um, I mean, you you can't make any progress without big risks. And what what we're seeing is... In in our school district in Phil in Philly, I think last year there was a budget of about two billion dollars, mm-hmm. and a a big chunk of that, uh, I want to say, seven hundred and fifty million of it is spent towards paying teachers. So like almost half of your funding is paying teachers. Yeah, and you're paying these teachers to teach content. So. Your 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 role as a teacher is I have some kind of material or information and I'm going to um, try my best to get a room full of students to to understand this information and then prove that they learn this information probably through a test 
And it's just, it's such a backwards way yeah. to operate, especially, especially in an area like a, a major urban area where, you know, the mar- majority of your students are coming from a high needs background and you know, our, at our school, all the students qualify for free or reduced lunch. So, um, it, it's like your funding is going towards paying these teachers to do something that we know it's not effective. It's not working. Yeah. It's not, it's not having the impact that you're not getting, you, you talk about ROI, you're getting little ROI and you for know your it. investment. You and know, we know it while it's happening. We know it's not yeah. working. We know it doesn't work. And it's, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time before anything really changes in, in the public school arena because this is just, we have something that's not broke. It's not completely broken. Yeah. It's, you got to wait till it completely. <laughs> we got to wait until it <laughs> crashes and burns. Just gets destroyed, yeah. But yeah, so um, it's, not, it, it's not completely broken, so it keeps going and going and going. But um, we're not addressing, you know, the needs of the population that we're serving aren't being addressed by delivering content to them, you know. And then what happens is, and we touched on it a little bit, like, you know, you can go in detail about the you know, school to prison pipeline. Um, but in a nutshell, you've got students who are acting out because of deep-seated problems and we're like we're putting band-aids on it by you know giving detentions or expelling kids from school or telling them to sit down and be quiet and and listen when you know or when they can't sit still we're going to give them drugs yeah yeah. so it's like all these all these band-aid options when we need to really address the source and so what, what i'm getting at is like i mean i i i have like a pretty good idea of what I would do if I was in charge. And I know, like, I know for a fact that um, this would help in a number of ways. Um, you know, instead of funding teachers to teach content, we need, we need more social workers in our school. We need yeah, counselors. Yeah. We need people who aren't just going to put Band-Aids on problems so they can get back to tossing content towards students, but people who are going to help to actually address the source of the issue and, work towards, you know, combating what's actually going on rather than trying to ignore that, you know, we're, we're not fully addressing the students' needs. We're just trying, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over again. Expecting different results. And you expect (laughs) different results. Well, you're in the classroom every day with these kids. So if anyone would have the perspective and insight to what what changes could be made to get the results that you're talking about it would be you because you you get to see just like you said the band-aids that you're you're trying to put on like it's almost it's almost as if it's it correlates to the whole like spanking your kid ideology that's been Mm -hmm. passed on for however many thousands of years where like the idea is that you're going to physically punish a kid for getting something wrong in hopes that they're going to be so scared that they're not going to do it again. And it's like, it's that just passes in to these other like punishment sort of reward based systems that we build. Whereas a lot of these kids like that might work if you put the, it, it might work, which I don't think it will is like the most efficient thing, but it might have like a better result at some of the upper levels, like maybe like middle upper class 
kids because like they have more of a cushion to fall back on. But you're talking about kids whose baseline needs aren't even met every day. So like they have this trouble at the home, they have trouble in their communities. They don't have like a like in a lot of cases they don't have a um a role model or mm-hmm. someone to look to for support in these areas. So when you do punish them or when you do like try to um invoke some kind of like authority uh, uh teaching mechanism a lot of times it's it's received very poorly in a way where it's just either lashing out or repeating of the problem because like you said there's not like a relational there's not like a relationship established and, and you've talked about this with me a bit in the past how in a lot of the contexts of these teacher-student relationships too especially in the in the philly district where these kids are they're used to the turnover rate being insane for teachers anyway so mm-hmm. like you a teacher like you could come in fresh out of college all inspired and motivated and like i'm going to change the world you get thrown into a classroom with some of these kids and just the chaos of it you're gone in a year or less and they're used to that like they're used to teachers coming in and going out and coming in and going out and it becomes this sort of repeating cycle for them where they know you're not truly invested in them as people you're there because it's a job and you are sort of trying to like you said push content onto them whereas they need they can't receive the content because they're not at a place in their personal lives where they have all these needs met and they can't even they, they can't grasp i guess the the importance of that context be, or the content because they don't have the context to receive it in a way sure if that makes sense yeah sure yeah i i just i really believe that uh, kid you know Kids are kids. Kids are going to be kids no matter where they are. But um, when you try to treat, when you try to treat kids like they're, um, like they're just machines that are going to learn things. Like, for example, like, um, what's, what's the difference between teaching a child and teaching an animal? You tell me. (laughs) Well, when you look at our schools, like from a, from a bird's eye perspective, it it sometimes it's hard to tell. It looks really similar. It looks similar yeah. because like a lot of our our school system is built on behaviorism, uh, which is like what you were touching on, like positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, um, do this, get that. Yeah, and you know that's it's essentially that's how you teach an animal. That's how you teach a dog. Is like yeah, you do this good thing here. I'm gonna give you a treat. You don't do this thing. Like going to the cage. Going to the cage, or I'm gonna. <laughs> Hopefully you don't hit your dogs. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't hit, hit your, your dogs. dogs. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> um, but you, you see, we we have this like it, it's a system built on compliance. And actually, what's really interesting on the on the topic of animals, I was just watching this program on crows, and they actually they found out that they gave crows the opportunity to be curious. So they gave them um, these puzzles, these like little logic puzzles. And so the crows are picking up shapes and putting them into um, different holes. Like it's like trying to find the right size peg for the right hole. And they're picking up these different shapes. And then just out of curiosity, they're they're learning and they're figuring out what types of shapes go into the different types of um, recesses. And what's interesting is the crows learn... And then, and so there's no reinforcement. It's just these crows were curious and they wanted to do this. And then they 
take the crows and they put them into a new context where there's a treat inside this contraption and there's only one peg that is the right size to remove the treat from the from the enclosure and the crows because they've spent a lot of time you know months going through this other activity they're able to you know go go in right away and they they maybe pick up the wrong size peg and they're just like no this isn't it they toss it away yeah and they're able to quickly figure out what the right tool for the job is and go and release the food and <laughs> eat yeah. it and what i thought was it, it was really interesting because they were taking animals and they're having them learn you know, just for the enjoyment of learning and then apply that learning in different contexts. And um, ideally, like, you know, that's what, that, that's when education... That's what you, yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, like, that's curiosity what you want. Curiosity is such a hot... That's like, you don't see that in almost any species because that's such... It's like a high level of sentience. Like, I've, I forget, I was talking to somebody about this mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. They were talking about the same exact thing with octopi, octopuses, octopi, I guess mm-hmm. that's the, the plural, where it's like the same thing. Like, you can tell... They've done the tests with octopi before where you can you can gauge their level of intelligence based on their curiosity because most animals, like when you put them in a trap or anything, they'll try their traditional method of escaping. And then once that doesn't work, they, you know, they get frustrated, give up or they freeze or they freak out, panic, whatever it is. Whereas an octopus just never gives up. It's just always trying new ways to get out. It can shift its body. It's It's naturally curious, I guess, in a way that most other intelligent animals aren't and which right. is we which is how we know human beings are you just have to find that curiosity like it's almost like the education system as it is now it's built to stamp that out early mm. on because yeah. it's it's almost like uh discipline over curiosity for like sure put, put your curiosity whatever it is through artistic expression or or passion or whatever the thing is that sort of would be classified as the the fire inside that gets you up in the morning, put that aside at least for a little while and just focus on school, focus on discipline. Whereas mm. that do in, in, so in doing that you just stamp out a lot of kids creativity right. in general and curiosity. Yeah. In general. And then what happens is it's <laughs> poor males of color who are really receiving the brunt of this. Yeah. Because you know, they're they're the ones who are not even it's not even that they're the ones who are most likely to um display bad behaviors, but they're the ones who are most likely to per- be perceived to display these types of behaviors. Yeah. And then it's just like the you know, the the law is dropped on them even more severely. Yeah, it's like constantly reinforced into these areas, which goes into, I guess, the institutional aspect of this, which a lot of people don't spend a lot of time talking about because it's a polarizing topic. But I mean, it really is when you have these inner city areas all around the country where the communities like and then well, you, you throw on um, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? like gentrification on top of that, where mm-hmm. certain areas of cities get gentrified and then push these communities continually outward. So the communities are just generation after generation of people, most mostly people of color, like living in poverty. Where it's like the, like you're saying, it, when you look at it from like a proportional um, perspective, perhaps like the those people, like whether it's the, like the black males, like they're not getting, they're not like committing. Maybe like if you looked at it across the board, like nationally or whatever, maybe they're not committing 
the um, the majority of those crimes, but it's perceived that they are because mm. it's in a highly concentrated area and it's so systematic within those areas. So you, it's easy to point to it and say, this is the problem here, whereas people aren't as willing to look at it and say, well, this is the institutional problem here because these communities are essentially trapped and it's yeah. just generation after generation of the same thing where it's like you get more and more discouragement of of what we're talking about like the curiosity the creativity these are all things that get stamped out by so not not just the educational system but society because mm-hmm. like when you when you don't have an outlet for those for those impulses then you do take them out in those in those ways that result in crime or or whatever else you know right definitely yeah and it, you know as as someone who's not you know, I'm not from that context that I'm teaching in. You know, I'm not, I'm not a person of color. I'm not. I, I came from a middle class background, and so it's like, you know, I'm going in there and I'm, you know, trying to, I'm trying to interpret things from my lens, and I'm trying to do the best I can. But you know, through doing the best I can, sometimes it might not be the best for the for the students I'm working with and it's it's tough because a lot of times now in the urban areas you have you know you'll have schools where the majority of the teachers are are white yeah and they're from and they don't even live in the city they live outside the city and they're coming into this context and they're well meaning like i mean these are good hearted well meaning people people. people trying to make a difference but you know a lot of times what happens is you you come in with your just your your, um unintentional biases and it's like it's 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 a proven fact that people have biases i i think it's gladwell talks about in blink like just like your subconscious and how quickly you make a decision and you'll justify your decision. You, like, like it's it's um it's subconscious. A lot of most of the decisions you make, yeah. or some people would argue all of them. Yeah. But then you um you justify it after the fact, after the decision is exactly. already made. And um, there's a test you can do where you can see pictures of people, and you rank whether you think the person is good or bad. Mm. And you're supposed to do it, you know, with no reaction time. Just make a just make a judgment on this person. And what's interesting is most people rank you know, their own race or most white people would rank people of their own race as being good and people not of their race as being bad in this test. Yeah. And it's not, and again, I'm not trying to say that we've got a bunch of racist people out there, but we have people who have biases. They're yeah. well-meaning people with biases. <laughs> and you have to recognize that when you go into the context, because you're the way, the way that you're, you know, wired to operate isn't going to be the same as the students you're working with. And it's going to be harmful if you're, you know, trying to take whatever works in a different context and just, bring it in and uh, deploy it in somewhere new exactly. where you don't really understand it. And so now then what happens is the, the the bad thing that happens then is like people might recognize that and say, okay, well, we need to do things different. And then it's like the con- the level of the instruction, like 
just plummets and it goes down and it's like, okay, we need to be mindful of the hurdles and the struggles that this population is going through. And so we're going to have to give them uh, abbreviated and adjusted work. And it's going to be, basically it's going to be dumbed down. Yeah. And that's a big problem is it's like, you're lowering, (laughs) you're lowering the expectations so much. Yeah. Like, and it's, again, it's like, well, we don't want to make things too difficult, but it comes back to content. We're trying to make the content easier. So we're not addressing the real issues. We're just saying, all right, let's just give you easier content. And, you know, you can try to work out your social issues on the side. Yeah. But you still need to do this math test, but we're going to give you, but it's only going to be multiplication and subtraction. No, you know, no division. That's, that's how we'll solve it. Yeah, I think most people look, like, from the outside looking in, again, like, talking about, like, the the differences between being raised in, like, a middle-class perspective versus a lower-class perspective of whatever. That's that's the rough outline we're looking mm-hmm. at here. It's, it's for a lot of people from that middle-class background, I think looking at it within this context is difficult because the way you're framing it is basically saying that you can't really separate what's going on in each one of these students' personal and social environments with their school environment. Whereas in a middle-class perspective, it's a lot easier to do that because, again, they have that cushion. They have more of a established, whatever you want to call it, safe environment where their their baseline needs are met. So you can say, and a lot, in a lot of the cases, this is where you get into the debates of, you know, like like the middle-class white kids saying, like, well, I had problems too growing up. It's like you you did have problems. It's just a different. It's scaled differently because if you had problems. In that context, you were still able, like you had your needs met in, in most cases, mm-hmm. this is generalizing, but you were able to, I think, focus more on the, the task at hand, whether that's like a project in school or your homework or whatever, because you're not worrying about your general safety. You're not worried about not having dinner on the table when you come home. Like you're not worried about your dad being gone, like you're never going to see him again. Like these are all, these are all things that, especially in the inner cities, that these kids are just day by day living in so it's it, you can't really separate the personal social environmental aspects of these kids upbringing with their educational aspect like it all it all comes sort of in in one big uh helping serving size and uh I, I feel like too like you're saying like with these teachers like they have good intentions but oftentimes i feel like it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where the more the more of an educational background I feel like any teacher has and the more years that they've spent sort of cultivating the idea in their head of what what they want to do with their teaching and like what they want to do with their career, by the time they actually land themselves in a, in, a, in a situation like teaching at a school in Philadelphia, at that point, you've built this idea up in your head so much of this is how it's going to be. I'm going to relay this content. Like it's, they almost have a streamlined plan. And like you said, it's so detached from the lives of the people that are actually being taught that when it goes haywire, they just either freeze up and, and like you said, start to detract and, and, um, and, uh, like, like dumb up the content or they just bail. Like they don't know how to adjust and roll the punches uh, in those instances because they've spent so much time in the in education themselves and working sort of through this ideation that they've created in their head of making a difference and mm-hmm. teaching kids and it's a, it's this whole like you said a really noble pursuit but it's really without the context of you know of that environment like it becomes 
when you're talking when you're talking about the perspective of these kids, like it, it's just so detached, and like those those methods of um, relaying content almost just they're all wasted on that because it's just not. If the content's not being received, it doesn't matter how good you are at you. You could have like the state of the art content machines like it's it doesn't right. matter like they're not going to receive it so yeah yeah and those and again those aren't the those aren't the skills that you're going to need in the future yeah like, like what are they going to do with that content like it's it's less about the content it's more about the experience what i think you're getting at like it's it's how do you how do you scale the educational programs in these in these instances to actually provide a tangible experience that these kids can take into the workplace into the future or they can do something with it yeah and <laughs> scale and scaling is the big problem especially in our context because you know in any in any you know viable business or uh, or a startup you you need to nail the concept before you scale what you're doing and you know in our context we've got <laughs> this challenge that we're we've embarked upon Mm -hmm. and by no means have we have we nailed this concept it's it's constantly in revision but you're forced to scale you're forced to continue to grow you're forced to keep bringing in um more students at least at least in our in our school you know it's like each year we're adding another grade and bringing in more students which brings along more challenges yeah and yeah. we still haven't we still haven't figured this out yet <laughs> but it's like you know when you're under when you're under um a major school district you don't have you don't have the liberty to to say, hold on hold on we're yeah, still figuring yeah, this out <laughs> we're not ready no school of christmas <laughs> yeah <laughs> Can you just let the let the students uh, they're on standby? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Well, just yeah. Field trip, you guys can. Yeah, it's insane. It's like the ball. Like everything just keeps moving forward, and it's not stopping. You just gonna have to keep adapting and failing over and over again until. Yeah, and it doesn't because <laughs> kids keep coming, and then they. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I get I get frustrated with. Um. I mean, I'm sounding I'm sounding a lot like a hippie, like calling for just more art, yeah. more music, <laughs> and who needs school? But, but the 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 strength of what I'm saying is coming from I truly believe I believe that all students can learn math, they can learn um, science, they can learn these these valuable skills, and I say valuable. I I I, I say that with caution because. I think they're valuable. They're inherently valuable. They're good to know. People throughout time have, you know, devoted their lives to figure these things out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's important to like, or just even recognize that like math, math itself just came out of necessity. Like the two most fundamental forms of math come from counting things, money, and measuring things, owning property. And it's like all all our number systems expound from that because it's like, you know, you're counting money. Well, what happens when you owe money? Yep. Now all of a sudden positive numbers aren't enough. You're going to need negative numbers. Yeah. Or if you're measuring things, what happens when you're measuring the diagonal of a square? Now all of a sudden you've got radicals. Yeah. 
square and, roots. And, and these and are all things like, that you don't realize, I guess, as an adult, when you've gone through the motions of the educational system, they pop up in, in different ways that don't look like just a math problem on a piece of paper. Like it's so, it becomes mm-hmm. so ingrained into your subconscious, you know, at a certain degree, you know, when you're dealing with the numbers and like your, your assets and your bills and all that, it's just Mm -hmm. second nature. Like you've learned it all through school. So you really do take for granted that, that ability to, um, to understand the way math works, you know, because it's like you, you might think like, oh, like when am I ever going to have to figure out like the square root of pi Mm -hmm. in real life or whatever? It's like, okay, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that comes with it where if you're not uh, using those skill sets to to a T with the career you've chosen, you're right. Like not every one of them transfers over, but the basic premises of mathematics is pretty much in every aspect of life. Oh, totally, <laughs> really totally. Is. And there's really there's two there's two things that you need to know. There's a there's the basic computational skills, and even that like. You you know you you don't need to do like extreme long division anymore. Yeah. You, you can got a get calculator away with, on your iPhone. Yeah, you've got a, a freaking supercomputer in the palm of your hands that you don't even, you don't even need to lift a finger anymore. You can just yep. ask it, and it will you know it will solve polynomial equations for you. Yeah. So you, what you can what you can be doing is just getting kids the basic computational skills, and my my philosophy is. The the deeper comprehension aspects of math should come, and they should come from curiosity, yeah. and they should come from curiosity that's built upon a strong knowledge of art and music. Yeah, because yeah. math itself, math is an abstraction. It's like just trying to look at what is the general framework of of things that we experience in our life, and what are the patterns that occur, and how can we take take these abstract concepts and apply them in different areas and it works profoundly well like the the fact that you know the laws of of our universe the um the major forces these are all described by mathematical equations it's just it's it's really unbelievable because yeah. the universe it could be just like a crazy unpredictable random no, it's, place. It's math. We got but it it's down. Not. It's math. Like it's if, a, if civilization blew up today and we had to start from day one, it would still be the same math thousands of years from now when they got to that point. Right. It it doesn't it doesn't change the, those those equations that can describe things don't change. But it's also it's a it's a creative pursuit. Yeah. And I think of like in my own experience, the things that really drew me to math were my love of art and music. Um, I just, I even remember thinking about, like, what is, you know, what is it that makes music sound the way it is? What is an octave? What, well, an octave is just, it's two no. notes that are different by a factor of two. Yeah. And it's like these simple, these simple things that, like, all of a sudden, like, you have an abstract language to describe something that you think is cool in the world and that's and that's where it should come from but um the issue is you know you you've got to you've got to measure things and you've got to prove that students are ready to move on to the next level yep. and you can do that a number of ways it's just our society has decided that math is the way we're going to do that we're going to prove that you're intelligent by you know doing this set of things but it's a culturally biased and yep. not very good way of figuring things out and it's rooted in like you know when you look back 
a lot of our education in math before the 60s um, was based on what are the basic things you need. You need to count and you need to be able to measure things. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to test you on. But then all of a sudden you've got in the, the 60s uh, with the new math, you've got the, you know algebra and geometry and calculus and these things that were um, kind of forced upon children because – we were in a war. We yeah. were in the Cold War. We've got an enemy who knows how to build the nuclear bombs, yep. and we've got to prepare our students to build rockets and bombs. Yeah. And you know, we're going to you know, dump this requirement on our whole country so that we can build up a generation of workers who are going to keep our country safe. And you know, what's the fastest way to convince people of something is just play on their fears. Yep. And tell and tell the parents of America that we're we're in trouble and we're gonna fall behind yeah. in the Your arms race. Your kids need math because Russia. Yeah. <laughs> it's that simple. It, it's crazy too. Like how much I mean, all that boils into IQ testing too. Where like you think it's so insane to think how much when you take these IQ tests, how much it relies on this complex geometry and these problems. Where it just like why is that relevant to? my my general intelligence and it's because like that's it's sort of the cultural norm that we have as a society over decades thought of like this is the standard this is how we measure if somebody is intelligent in our society it's based on the memorization of numbers how how many different complex um like algorithms and scientific problems that like, can you compute and that equates to your intelligence Rather than in a lot of cases, like if you're really good at memorizing, you could just be looked at as intelligent. Like you might not know anything about anything, but you're great at memorizing math and scientific equations. And then, boom, like your IQs through the roof in a lot of these. And a lot, not yeah. in every, because obviously they're more, the IQ tests are more comprehensive than that. But like that's, it's crazy how large of a role it plays in general. And yeah. And it's just crazy too. Like the, like you're talking about like how you sound like a hippie talking about the arts and all this, but like even just forgetting about the arts for a sec, when you're talking about igniting curiosity and passion in students for these types of things, like even just the tangible skills in life that you can, you can throw in, especially at younger ages where I was on a panel the other week uh, talking about millennials and a lot of it was about millennials in the workplace and things that millennials um, are failing at and how we can reframe the conversation and things that we're doing really well at. And, one of the topics that kept coming up was um, essentially uh, savings and just finances and all mm. that and how millennials like have no money saved and we don't understand investments and there's not as much traditional investing with stocks, bonds, uh, IRAs, all that. And it's interesting how like even just something as basic as that because it's not taught in the school systems. Like if you're a kid growing up in poverty, you'd probably be way more interested to learn how to save money in a viable context when it comes to math versus just the math equation itself like if you can teach these things almost side by side like where like you see so you learn the foundational skill set for, yeah, the, for well, the topic you know it's funny because you know you know how many students have come up to me and asked that question this year is like when are we going to learn about finances yeah. i want to learn more about my money no, none of them have asked me um how do I tell if a shape is a parallelogram? Exactly. I haven't gotten that question once. And it's a, and it's the same across the board. I mean, you could you mm -hmm. could you could copy that exact same uh, rhetoric toward writing. It's like English. It's like how many more kids would be interested in learning how to write better if they're teaching kids in school how to write their resumes? 
mm-hmm. or writing letters to schools. It's like these are things that you don't – you literally – if you do learn them, you learn them in like your third quarter of your senior year where right. teachers are essentially like, hey, we're shipping you off to college. Let's get mm-hmm. you ready with some last-minute preparations. Like mm-hmm. these are things that if you're teaching kids younger, like th- there's so many creative um, implementations that you can pair like side-by-side side, like to really get – to pique that curiosity. But like you said, it's just not – it's not how we measure as a society the success of a student. Like the student's success comes down to testing. It's always testing. It's like testing with numbers. We can tangibly, we can, we can side by side compare, you know, this school to that school with their grading. We can, there's, there's all these really nice and neat ways to, to basically look, you know, we, we can stack different schools and categorize them by like, this is, you know, this is a school at level one, this is a school at level two, and you can compare and contrast the mm-hmm. intelligence of students that way and like the, the way they're learning, but it's so limited. And it ever, and no matter how well prepared the teachers are in that school, you are with the system, you have, like you said, the teachers above anyone else are aware of how they're marginalizing so many kids in those classrooms. Like yep. even if 70% of each kid in, the, in those classrooms every year is getting this material and getting A's, that 30% isn't. And then even within that 70%, they're not, they might, how many, how, how much percent of that 70% aren't interested at all? They're just doing the work because maybe they have the discipline or whatever. Like how many students are coming out of that class excited about math or excited about science or excited about writing? It's like none. It's like what, <laughs> like 10 maybe? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it varies school to school, but it's not many because of the system, the way the system is taught. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's again, it's a, it's a broken model. Um, when you look at the great minds of education uh, and you read, and you read their work, they, they call for a lot of times these, um, these communities where you have, um, this is a big word, but it's called legitimate, um, legitimate peripheral participation. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you're, you're participating in a community around some sort of skill or activity and you're on the periphery and you're with, so if you could imagine a circle and let's say you're just starting to learn like podcasting, right? Yeah. And so you're on the edge of the circle and let's say um, someone, a podcaster that you really enjoy, like we'll say like, so Joe Rogan, he's not at the center, but he's closer to the center. Mm-hmm. And so like, as you participate in this community of podcasters, like you're going to, through interaction with other people in the community and through developing your craft, you're going to get closer and closer to the center. Um, but there's not, there's not a teacher who's standing at the center. Who's like just delivering all this information to you and telling you like, this is how you be a podcaster. This is how you set up the microphones. This is how you interview a guest, but you're learning as you participate on the periphery, moving towards the center in a legitimate way. So, um, ideally that's what classrooms should look like and that's what schools should look like but instead we have a very linear model it's like you're either you know let's say on the left side of this line where you don't know anything or you're a teacher and you're at the end point 
or I'm, we'll call it a segment to be mathematically correct. <laughs> I was going to say a line yeah. segment. Okay. Yeah, it's a line segment. I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a true segment. So you've got your left segment where you don't know anything and you're new to this class. And then you've got the right side where the teacher is and they have all this knowledge. And they're going to deliver this knowledge to you and they're going to do it by standing up front while you sit in rows and desks. And um, I, think, I think a lot of schools are starting to try to deviate from that and trying to leave that model. But... Still, our schools are built upon that. We're built upon this linear, someone's got the information and they need to deliver yep. it well, to you. Well, it's built just in the, the foundation of the classroom where the teacher's up front and the desks are all facing the right. same direction. Like yeah. it's literally in, like when you walk into the room, that's yeah. how it's built. And in some schools, the chairs are actually bolted to the floor <laughs> so you can't change it <laughs> this even is if permanent. you wanted to. Yeah. It's always going to be this We way. don't believe in change here. Forever. <laughs> but, but, you know... You know who's really doing education right? Tell me. Video games. Esports. Esports are the wave of the future. Um, East, it, it has everything because you have students entering into, uh, I'm calling them students, but um, people playing these games and they're entering these communities and they're learning through the pursuit of this activity and they're learning in a community and they're developing say, yeah. skills yeah. and <laughs> this these skills are becoming a viable career option more and more frequently these days Hashtag you've got twitch yeah i don't even know what twitch is Twitch is the big one that's like the video game streaming i don't even think it's just video games just oh twitch vi- okay it's video yeah yeah i'm get... familiar with twitch yeah um yeah you've got um but you've got major universities now like offering yeah Athletic scholarships to play esports, which so is like, insane. <laughs> well, yeah. they can make money off it now. I mean, it's it is it's a funny yeah. adaptation for colleges because you think, I mean, that's a whole again conversation in its own right. Is the college colleges use slash potential exploitation depending on what what side of the aisle you land on with that? But their their use of college sports and how that's one of it is their money maker mm-hmm. and a lot of it like depending on the school obviously, but in a lot of these bigger universities like their the sports, especially football, make them mm-hmm. millions. And I don't know. I think it's net nationwide. It's something like a seventeen billion dollar industry. It's right. absurd. So you think like as they watch these Twitch gamers and like get the gaming community grows bigger and bigger every year. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's where the kids are going. I mean, like that's, it's, it's almost, it's almost one of the most, com- it's more common. I think I, again, I'm speaking out of my ass. I don't know this for yeah. a fact, but it seems like it's way more common than sports growing up for kids. Like kids, mm-hmm. I feel like if you're a kid in the United States, at least like you're more likely to grow up being an avid gamer than an right. avid sports player. You and know, some, I don't know how a total much of role that, reversal. Yeah. <laughs> if it's true, I don't know. But yeah, well, I think even kids who are, you know, you would label as the uh, the popular, the jocks, the athletes, mm-hmm. they're also like they're also into gaming. Yeah, the game too. These days, yeah. the game. They, <laughs> you know, they watch YouTube. They watch other people playing games. Yep. Like that. That's just. It's so. Insane. I just can't. I can't fathom like a world where. That much time could be spent on video games, but you're not even playing the game. You're yep. watching someone else play the game. Yeah. Online. But then again, you know, like I remember like growing up, like one of the fun things to do was like when you had a you had a new game and maybe you had an older sibling or cousin who was like good at this game. Of course, and, then, yeah. and you didn't quite have you the motor skills to play. And yeah. you would 
sit there and watch them. And, totally. And there's a lot so. of celebrity attached to it, too. I mean, it's a way similar to social media with, with um, platforms like Twitter where it's super accessible for people to mm-hmm. get in touch with like different celebrities, whether it's in athletics or um, or Hollywood or whatever it is. You can tweet at them and they potentially get back to you. It's, it's really similar with Twitch where it's like a lot of famous people have Twitch accounts. Mm-hmm. So you get to watch them. You can donate money to them, maybe chat with them. I mean, it's a very cool visceral interactive thing if that's your community like if that's it's it's so weird like whenever i talk to people who don't spend a lot of time online or in these cultures they don't get it at all because like if you Mm -hmm. if you grew up in a community of of good people and you know you were surrounded by friends and family growing up and you socialized a lot and like that was just kind of what you were conditioned for when Mm -hmm. you come across these online communities and these gaming communities i think not all the time, but oftentimes you you look at it very like sideways. Like you don't mm-hmm. really understand. Like how could you spend your whole life online? Like it's not real. But to these people, it's real. Like it's their maybe it's some kid who lives in the middle of nowhere, like in right. Kansas or something. Like doesn't they don't have a community to hang <laughs> out with or or if Ready they do, player it's, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, seriously. And like that's you know that's that's the reality. I think. And, and you know, there's again the whole conversation in and of itself. There's pros and cons to the cultural conditioning of someone spending the majority of their life online and like what that does to different members of society. But I think as a whole, like we have to start looking at it way more seriously, which it sounds like I didn't even know that, that colleges were doing that. Like you can see now, like that's, it's starting to get monetized by oh, institutions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whenever like, it was money, only a matter of time. But <laughs> they figure out real quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And who else other than colleges who are just like, I mean, Colleges are really uh, education is ripe for a for a big revolution because it's like right now it essentially is like um, Scott Galloway calls it a caste system. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know it it's essentially just a way to figure out who is who is going to be part of the elite yeah <laughs> elite employment class because it's just it's so expensive like the inflation rate for college tuition is just skyrocketed and you're essentially you're getting something that I don't know that it's I don't know that you're really getting any of your money's worth yeah in in most places like there there are there's still good things like I I think you should go to college um most people who have um an academic minded pursuit like you know college is still a good idea but it's just yeah, it's 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 ridiculous that you could pay, you know, you could be several hundred dollars or several hundred grand in debt for um, learning a lot of stuff that you can, you know, you can kind of learn on your own. Exactly. These days. Nowadays, I, mean, I think that's a big um, I don't know what you want to call it, I guess, point of contention for people in the discussion of school, because you have a lot of more blue collar um, minded people or mm-hmm. people at least of that perspective somewhat who look at it as a waste of time and money and they say who needs college screw college you know let's just like get a good trade and like the and you're better off and that's that's great and that's sort of the extreme i guess straw man the generalization of that mm-hmm. end of the spectrum then you have people on the other end of the spectrum who are just like no you have to go to college if you want to get anywhere in life like you need to go into debt you need to get into these institutions and you know whittle your life away into you know finding some high paying job hopefully over the course of time those are the extremes and i think that the truth is 
somewhere in the middle for everybody because there are a, a lot of trades that are high in demand that people need need we need met and people can um, fit into to have a sustained uh, livelihood and career throughout their life and then there's also a lot of careers that you can get to and through within community college and lower mm -hmm. tiered schools like you don't need to be going into these prestigious universities that are charging a hundred plus k a year where it's just it's literally just all in the exclusivity and in the name and i think a lot of it too um, i know something you're really interested in is the ai aspect of it where so much of the work that we look at right now as a potential career or job opportunity it's going it's only a matter of years if not a couple decades where those are just gone completely mm -hmm. by artificial inte general intelligence so yeah. like is that something you wanted to get into at all <laughs> of course I, I, I know you love talking about it so. well i'm like a, i'm an aspiring futurist yes and i guess as long as time keeps moving i'm gonna get closer and closer yes. to it without even doing anything <laughs> just constantly living in the future so yeah. that's, that's all that's, that's all that's required q squidward meme I <laughs> future i think you i think you're if, if anyone i know could call themselves a futurist it's you i mean you're always reading up on the latest and greatest from Kurzweil and and uh, Elon Musk and all these yeah, hyper, hyper innovators, yeah, that are just that whole clan. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how that's just completely changing the landscape of education and careers in Western culture. Maybe I should incorporate that into my title for myself. You probably should. You I could should be like I'm a math, a mathematical futurist. That sounds really good. It sounds like I would like clear out a cocktail party. I was going to say it sounds <laughs> pretentious as shit, but also hilarious and awesome. <laughs> you're, you're Depends a on who you're with. It's a, a who? If you're like a group of like mega I have nerds. To go to the bathroom. <laughs> Some people would love that. Other people would just be like, yeah, who, it would be who like, is this loser? <laughs> it would be like 5% of the population who would be like intrigued enough to talk to me. Yeah. And then the rest would just be like, this is... Just get out of my face. <laughs> I feel like most people that we know, at least, they don't even know what futurism is. It's not really a mainstream. It's one of those, it's one of those areas, I feel, of um, interest that fall into the lore of a place like Reddit or um, deep and like going to YouTube. There's not a lot of central hu mainstream hubs where futurism is talked about, at least at least in a way that doesn't sound wacky. I mean, you, Elon Musk is probably as mainstream as it gets when it comes to this kind of stuff, and he doesn't, you know. Yeah, but we know all the futurists of yesteryear. Yeah. Like, we know, like, everyone reads Jules Verne yeah. in high school. He was a futurist at one point. Mm -hmm. He's not anymore. But it's just like, now. nowadays, the people of our wave. time, it's the new wave, yep, it's new wave of futurists. And it's just, it's fascinating to try to, to try to zero in and make accurate predictions about where, I mean, just even where employment is going to go. Because like the largest, um, the largest sector in the U.S. is transportation, and it's like that's it. Yeah. We, the the handwriting is on the wall that this is going to go, and I really feel like it's going to be. I think it's um I think it's Elon Musk um who is I I can't remember who it is some someone with uh, skin in the um, autonomous driving game has more more lawyers on their team than software engineers. Yeah, because yeah, he's talked yeah. about, to, and he's also, it's really interesting, too, to listen to him, his public statements on something like this, because it, it's something like five or seven million 
um, adult males are they they make up the the drive-in uh, industry. Like that's mm-hmm. it's the I'm pretty sure it's the um, the most prominent career field for adult males in the mm-hmm. U.S. I'm pretty sure. And like a guy like Elon Musk and and the late Steve Jobs and some of these other tech gurus um they, they've come out but especially elon musk has come out in a lot of statements lately talking about um uh, what's it called uh universal basic income yeah because oh. and, it, and it's and it, it's so interesting because careful exactly as a topic careful nate it's, <laughs> well it's like as, as a topic like that it's a hot topic and a lot of people are talking about it, but it's interesting to watch the tech people push this topic into sort of the political sphere because they have skin in the game because they know as soon as tesla takes over the roads in the next mm-hmm. couple decades which is obviously not just tesla other other competitive um, um car manufacturers i'm sure smart car manufacturers will come into play i'm sure but he's the the sort of steve jobs of this a- a- arena and right. you know as that starts to happen and these five seven million however many um, people lose their jobs almost overnight they're mm-hmm. the ones grabbing the pitchforks to go after the tech people like Elon Musk. So yeah. it's like he's hedging his bets. Like these these tech guys in Silicon Valley are hedging their bets because they know automation is going to be taking jobs from millions of people. And they are going to be the people that everyone's going to want to go after because it's their fault. They're the ones that are perpetuating this technology. So, of course, it, when you look at it and for people who don't know um, the policy for from universal basic income like the idea there's tons of different uh, potential formats for it but the idea is basically that the government on an annual basis would give a set salary to every united states citizens this mm-hmm. be it 10 15 20 30 thousand dollars a year and it would just be um given like freely to every mm-hmm. single no matter how much money they're making a year you could be making 10 grand a year 100 grand a year it doesn't matter everybody would get it and the idea is that as automation and um, artificial general intelligence starts to take over the workplaces and people are put out of jobs, at least the basic needs of people are met so that they, if they want to pursue jobs on top of that, they can. But like just to at least cover some of the grounds of loss that AI is going to read upon the world. Yeah, it's it it's very nuanced, the um, the way to approach universal basic income because uh red lights go off right away and you think wait like ma- like mass welfare yeah like, that's what? that's what it's that's basically what it sounds like yeah and it's um i don't i'm i'm not an, an economist like i can't i can't speak to detail Good disclaimer. about <laughs> i yeah. feel the need to disclaim the yeah, exact I need thing to disclaim because <laughs> that's the this this is the side of futurism yep. that i like <laughs> I I really I really don't know, but the way the way I've had it explained to me is just imagine imagine a world. Well, we talk about basic needs like like Maslow's hierarchy, like just having food and having shelter, and like imagine a world where we have we have the infrastructure and we have the intelligent machines to do the farming for us yep. and we we have this sustainable scalable farming system where all of a sudden it we can feed you know let's just focus on the united states we can feed everyone in the united states for like a fraction of what it costs right now for all the all the produ- all the produce that farmers um supply to the market and then on top of that, we have um, 
machines that are building houses and they're building sustainable houses out of materials that are, you know, readily available. Yep. And bioefficient. So, right. Bioefficient. And yeah. again, they're doing it for a fraction of the cost. So it's like we have these things, all of a sudden they're available. They didn't cost that much money. So like why, you know, why wouldn't you provide that to people? Why wouldn't you give people, you know, a nice sustainable home and yep. food? With, you know, at a minimal cost or no cost, if you can. And it's coming across the board. I mean, even companies, there's a really fascinating company out there called Memphis Meats. And the guy's name is Uma. I forget his last name, but he started this company and it's it's a lab-grown meat. I think it's the, I don't know if they're the first, but they're a major innovator in the field right now, like producing this lab-grown meat. And obviously, there's tons of uh, skepticism and criticism, you know, up, like right now approaching this. But they have they've got the funder, funders, they've got the the people, they've got the tests. They're showing like this this meat. It it's made with it's made by cells grown in actual animals. Like they're taking cells from living cows, pigs, chickens, mm-hmm. whatever. Then you know, doing extrapolating whatever from those cells in a lab and growing the actual literal like the DNA of mm. that cow is in this piece of steak that they're making, and it's in a lab. And right now, I mean, it's you you see this all across the board with this type of technology. Like right now, I don't know what the number is, but it might be twelve grand to make a steak. But it's only a matter of five, ten years when that it's going to be at market price. It's going to be right. ten bucks to make a steak and with all the efficiency and none of the waste. Whereas mm-hmm. like you're looking, when you look at the way a standard steak is produced in the U.S., it's like the factory farming that goes into it. Like you have you have the mass factory farming, and then you have the mass uh, agriculture that's outsourced in the U.S. and outsourced into other countries where you just have liter- like literally, I don't know the numbers, but it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of fields that li- just produce wheat and soy for animals to graze on. Right. Just to get slaughtered, right. so like you're literally you're cutting like I I don't know what the numbers are, but you are cutting that process into nothing. It's literally getting grown in a lab efficiently, but like at snap of your fingers, it's they can put the cells in there and it's good to go. So you're you're not leaving a uh, footprint from an environmental perspective. So it's like you're taking that aspect of it. So you got all like your environmental people happy about that. Then you have your vegan. Uh, animal rights people happy because you're not like taken out of that and then you also just have the cost of the agriculture Mm. and the factory farming completely mitigated by this thing made in a lab and that's just going across the board with all food like you just mentioned like like farming it's like it's already being done in agriculture like people machines are already finding new efficient ways to just literally grow plants indoors like we are we are completely um uh what do you call it like uh just warping the 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 photosynthesis, like the the natural methodology that nature has created to make plants. We are warping it. We've already been warping it with machines for decades, and yeah. now we're just doing it in a way that's completely done by machines in a way more efficient, cost-effective way. <laughs> yeah, we're enhancing it. Like the yeah. the foods we eat are not natural. Like yeah, they're already not natural. Yeah, like watermelons, like seedless watermelon. Like how? <laughs> how did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> and they're all the same size. Everything's the same size. Everything's perfect. It stays that way for weeks. It's like it gets grown in California and it's shipped out to Pennsylvania and it's in a truck for a week and then it stays in the supermarket for a week. It's good for two more weeks like this. Right. We, we've been doing this for a long time and it's only going to keep going and getting more efficient. And 
yeah, then, then bye bye to those millions of jobs for people. <laughs> I, I I just sidetracked myself. I'm trying I'm trying to remember the guy who sings that song with the seedless watermelon in it. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> what is the guy's name? It's, I don't know. It, 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 the chorus is like, "Oh chariot." Oh, oh my What's God. that guy's name? Oh, I forget. Oh, uh, no. It's going to bug me. We need to have a, a a young Jamie. We need someone here to pull it up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> pull up that video. <laughs> uh, it's going to bug Right as soon as I said it, I was like, I'm going to regret <laughs> saying that. Cause now I can't remember that guy's name. But maybe it's for the best. His yeah. songs are so catchy. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to kill anybody's ears with that. Yeah. No, no, we don't. <laughs> but, yeah, I think um, and it's... It also, again, like from an economic standpoint, I'm I'm speaking more hypothetically. Like it could, like all of these advances and having like this work done by machines that are you know exponentially more efficient than a human worker just boosts the economy beyond recognition. And it's like all of a sudden you have extreme amounts of wealth. And this is like I've I. I I've read this. I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand this side of it. So like, I don't think anybody I, does. I think it's all speculation. It's yeah. all, I mean, even the the best economists don't know. We're all just putting out our best predictions to to see. I mean, until it happens, it's it's just like the universal basic income argument. It's like all economists can argue it night and day, but until it's implemented on a large scale, like they're just. They're just saying, like, here's the probability. Here are some right. smaller scale examples of where it's happened in this country or in this state or this community. And it's it's really, I think it's tough to to predict fully the repercussions of this stuff. Right. And, and hopefully we, we will roll with the punches. Like, we've been talking about, like, society, it seems like society does a good job of rolling with the punches. We're just always a punch behind. We're always, like... We're never we're behind the eight ball. We're never right. you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I just I really want to stray from the doomsday model. Yeah. Because that's usually where people go. Is it's like, oh, the jobs are gonna be gone. Um, no one's gonna have work. Like the rich are gonna get richer, the poor are gonna get poorer. And that's you know, that's it's the, one. it's the fear model, like we were yeah. talking about oh, before. Yeah. And that, that, that's what gets you a TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> build your build your uh, bug out station. That's a jab at kids. Sam Harris. Just <laughs> Yeah, yeah pe- people love hearing that for whatever reason. Just uh, the doom and gloom side of all this. It's good because it, well, it's it, like it fulfills the movie. It fulfills like iRobot and yeah. and all these. But yeah. you kind of like to think about like I don't know. Like it's just like it's entertaining to think about like worst case scenario yeah. situations. End like, of the world. Walking I find dead. myself doing that like often. Like I'll just be sitting in like a restaurant and I'll think like. What if there's an active shooter here? Like, what am I gonna yeah. do? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll just, I'll just play through it in my mind and think, like, okay, like, yep. I do that all the time. You're on a plane. Just imagine the plane going down. Just gonna be like <laughs> pushing old ladies out of the way, like George Costanza. Yeah. <laughs> out of the way! It's a fire! There's a fire! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It's, yeah. That's totally true. It's like people. It just drums up dramatically in your head way easier. Than but that. yeah, but I really don't like. I get excited, and this is why I love futurism, is because it and it and it circles back to education. Because you know, you imagine a, a post needs society where you know your basic needs are accounted for. And let's let's go let's go extreme and say that um, work is for enjoyment now. Like you have your income is supplied. Um, you have you have everything that you need from a survival standpoint, and maybe there's um, side projects that you can do to get like a 
a cooler self-driving car or whatever. Yeah. Whatever the yeah. latest tech is. Your little is. your update, like in Tony Hawk, you're updating your skate deck. You're yeah. Just like, <laughs> getting new colors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, what then? What are you going to school for? What are yeah. you trying to learn? And that does circle back to what we were talking about. This whole content-based curriculum versus uh, experiential and pragmatic-based curriculum where if the goal of education is solely, I shouldn't say solely, but based solely around content-driven material where teachers are, teachers are taught to teach content. And it's mm-hmm. like, let's get you from 8th to ninth grade. You're going to pass these exams. You're going to do this homework. You're going to learn these problems, and you're going to get efficient enough to get to the next level for the next grade. And it's based solely, again, not solely, the majority of it is based on right, that. Right, right. Well, let, let, let me step back again and say, like, like then when you ask yourself, what's the, what's the purpose? Why are we learning things? And it should come back to, like, the stuff you're learning. You're learning things um, because you're trying to develop yourself and you're trying to make, like, as uh, or someone who's directing education, you're trying to make the people who are learning better people. You're yeah. trying to let them be, you know, let them grow into people who are going to be curious and want to better themselves and be, um, you know, a, a contributing member of a community and a and a and a thoughtful, a thoughtful, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, not well-rounded, but just like someone who takes in, like. Like someone who takes in different perspectives. Yeah. Blanking on yeah, yeah, blanking yeah. on the word I want right now. But you're bas- basically you're trying to develop a person. And you do that like teachers do that indirectly through the delivery of content. Like, you know, you learn hard work and discipline through learning your times tables. But it's like, again, what we're measuring and we're measuring the success of institutions based on content rather than the development of people. Yeah. And I think a huge part of this, too, which we haven't touched on at all, is that in generations past, like our parents' generation and their their parents' generation, a lot of the skills that we're talking about here, they were taught in the household. So mm. it's like there was, a, there was mm. an expectation on the household and then the community. Like you learn these certain um, skills and sort of life, like street smarts, essentially. Mm. You learn you know, how to act in public, how to talk to adults, you know, how to deal with money. Like, these are all things that you were, so, it was sort of expected to learn this in the house, and then school was meant just for the book learning. Right. So, like, as time has gone on now, that model has just enforceably changed as society has sort of gone haywire with the technology boom, because now you, you're, we're in a position where families are forced to be working way more than they were working before. Right. So, like, mom and dad aren't there as much and the communities are almost become non-existent because now communities exist on social media like you don't even have to know your neighbor like i just had two new neighbors move in like i don't even know when they moved in because they don't have cars so i don't even know they live there <laughs> and i saw the one guy and he's been there for at least a week or so and it was like the interaction i had with this guy was he didn't want anything to do with me and like I, i'm hoping that that can sort of be remedied every time i try to introduce myself to him and it was just this interaction like you know, I'm here, you're here, but that's, that's all it needs to be. Like, we don't need right. to be friends. And like, that's, I think that's the case in a lot of the situ, like the context across the Western culture, where it's like, as, as society continues to advance technologically, co- like community moves into networking online. And a lot of these lessons that were uh, expected to be taught through communal and parenting methods 
are now pushed into the education system forcibly and teachers aren't prepared to teach those subjects. So then it becomes a teacher like you're the way you talk about this is a way I think like in your in your school maybe you have a lot of fellow teachers who think like you in this right. way but I yeah, feel like we're we're very fortunate to be in a place where um not only do people think um generally in the same direction but um the it's a it's a bunch of people who really do care and that's a unique position. Right, because it is a job. Like teaching teaching's a job, it's a paycheck and it's like it's it's real easy like you know to to get to get complacent as you get older. And like also when you're in a system that's not working well and it's your job and that's your career and like yeah. hey, you know, it's time to punch in and <laughs> yeah. And I and I think and I think to the credit of most like I'm not trying to say like you're <laughs> on a higher uh, platform than just the average teacher. But I am saying that I think to the credit of teachers as an occupation as a whole, you ha- you have not in every case, obviously, obviously there's bad teachers and there's bad people that get into teaching. But I think as a whole, when you look at the occupation comparatively to other occupations, teaching is filled with some really philanthropic, uh, phil- how, 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 how would you say Philanthropic. That? Philanthropic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. People. Is it philanthropic? I don't, I don't philanthropic? know. But pe- any listeners would understand what I'm saying. But yeah. it's filled with people who really are trying to make a change and, right. and do good because they're literally teaching. So, I mean, you can have bad teachers. They do exist. But I, I think in a lot of these situations, especially older people, like if you're in your 40s, like right now or 50s right now, and you're moving into like a tenured position in your college or not even tenured, but if you're at a high school or whatever, and you've just been teaching in this school for decades it's you, maybe you haven't lost your um your passion for teaching and learning and all that but you may you probably have become stagnant in your in your your strategy and essentially and how right. how you're doing it so it's not like teachers are these bad people that can't adapt it's more that i think teachers in most cases are really good people doing good work they just don't they don't have the the tools themselves to really jump ahead of this eight ball that we're constantly trailing behind. Like as a year, as an example, you're fascinated by futurist futurism. You're fascinated mm-hmm. by AI. You're fascinated by innovation. These are things that as you grow older, yeah, and you're also single. So it's yeah. like, that's a huge part of it. Like as you grow older, teachers who are like married, have kids and stuff. And that becomes such a big part of their lives that they're not, they don't have the time or the energy to focus on these new and evolving things that really because the wheels keep turning yeah i keep i keep trying to remind myself that because it's like you know there's so many things that i'm interested in and i have like uh i have my hands in many different pots like um uh passion wise but like you know i keep thinking like i'm never i'm never gonna have as much time as i do now right now this is is all this moment is all you this moment is like (laughs) this is it there's no foreseeable like i mean i I, I I love where I am right now, but like the the family, the idea of like having a family and kids, like I want to have a lot of kids. Yeah, and like that's like, you know, God willing, that's gonna happen at some point. And I just like you it's know, not possible is... though. It's really not. I mean, I think you you brought up Joe Rogan earlier. I mean, right. whether people like or don't like him, like as a just as a well-rounded person, he's somebody who, at the top of his game, in, in what he does, he's constantly partaking in different activities, whether that's podcasting, UFC commentating, television shows, different entertainment, different projects, different hobbies. Like He's always doing things and balancing 
family life. Right. So it is, and he's like, I mean, obviously an outlier in that way. Like most people, and I have no idea if he's a good dad or a good husband <laughs> or any of these things. He but says he is. He say, well, who knows? So like, obviously, I'll take him at his word. <laughs> Assume the best. Yeah. Right. I guess that's that's the the yeah. the, the good but, human. But thing no, like, I mean, but, I'm I'm not saying that like uh, this is the end. Like, yeah, get get but the you're, ball I know what you're chain saying. You coming. have the most opportunity right now. I have the most freedom. opportunity, but I also need to like, I need to get better at setting in like habits that are going to prepare me yeah. for that time too and like and just making healthy choices like you know it's it's not a good idea to start like painting a picture at like 12:30 in the morning yeah like that's a bad it's a bad idea in the future you won't be able to do that no like, I, that I won't, won't be, be an option that won't be an option because then like then I'm like you know making people close to me suffer by my like grumpy I didn't sleep yesterday yeah <laughs> And a lot of that, too, I think comes with just being a well-rounded, healthy, emotionally intelligent person. Because yeah. I, I know there's a lot of people in my life, at least, that I look at. And, you know, so, so there's so there's certain people that get swept up into life as they become an adult. Like maybe they get pregnant early on. Like maybe they get married just really in, in really young. Or maybe mm-hmm. they didn't go to college or they, maybe they dropped out of college and jumped into a certain career field. And now they're stuck. Like there's all these sort of pitfalls that you can easily slip into as a young adult and and honestly even on top of all that the most simple one is getting into a bad relationship i mean it seems like nowadays it's so easy like like it's at your fingertips everything like you have tinder you have online dating like you have all these tools that like at their best are amazing tools obviously and they do so much good but then at their worst they sort of um, perpetuate like the most toxic features of, mm-hmm. of relationships and people. So yeah. like as people, like if you're if you're a good, well-rounded person, and then you get into a bad relationship, that can just derail you for the rest of your life. Because then sure. if you knock that person up, or get knocked up, or if you're if you just you know say, oh, you know this is a to- toxic relationship, but I'm gonna see it through, and you get married to them, all mm-hmm. of a sudden now all this time and all this freedom for possibilities is put down the drain like how many people like i know and i don't know a ton like at a close level like not a close relational level but there's so many people like that i went to school with or that i knew years ago and they're just dreamers people with great ideas like things they wanted to do talented musicians talented writers talented whatever then they got married and just now they don't do anything mm-hmm. and there's, it's not that there's anything i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with wanting to settle into a family and focus on that. In fact, I think that's admirable and really cool. But I think that there's a healthy perspective as someone who's an innovator or, or an artist or whatever, that there are ways to get into these healthy yeah, relationships totally. where you can balance it. Because you totally. see it all the time. And, like, it's so annoying when when people, especially young people, look at it so pessimistically, like, oh, yeah, like, once you get married, like, you're done, man. Like, you can't you can't do anything cool. You got no time. It's like, that is such bullshit. Like it really is. I mean, there's, yeah. there's so, it's, it all depends about who you are, what you're doing, who your partner is. Like, there's so many factors involved. And I think if you're a healthy, well-rounded person, I think when, you know yeah, when I mean? you're a healthy, well-rounded person, like having a family becomes a constraint, like a creative constraint. Yeah, and it forces you to um, focus your efforts more cleanly. I think it also, which I would argue you... is good. Right? No, yeah, yeah. no, it's I'm saying healthy, it's a good it's a healthy thing. constraint, and it's. Um, it helps you to, um, what's the word? Um, like focus your energies. 
No, um, not just focus, but it, it helps you to avoid like the law of diminishing returns. Right. Like I think a lot of times you can like you can just put too much into something. Like yep. you can it, it, you can overdo something. Some things are meant to just be the way they are. Like yeah, you make like a music project your life, and then it fails miserably, and now you have failed miserably, and your life is over. Whereas when you have a family, like that becomes sort of like your your north star, like your central focusing point so that all the projects that you bring into your life surrounding that when they go wrong or like you do two step or one step forward two steps back it's way less of a destruct destructive uh pattern that evolves after that oh know? sure yeah yeah i didn't think of it from that perspective oh my bad <laughs> no but no that's that's okay you you yours was yours that's was better no yeah. yours was better <laughs> yours was better i'll admit it get out of here yeah but that's that's i mean no 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 one's an island you need you need support and what better support than a family like yeah whatever i don't know it's it'll, yeah but it's like work it, but it is it's yeah exactly it's work and it's one of those things that i think i think just so many people fall into traps and like it's really easy like i've fallen into traps i'm sure you have fallen into traps mm-hmm. like everybody does it it's not really it's not really something that, that I think anybody has a right to sort of look down on anybody to say, like, you fell into that trap because we all do it. But mm-hmm. I think the the traps that occurred to young adults especially, like ages 18 to 30, like those are the ones that set you up for the rest of your life then because it really right. – you're still in that developmental stage where your 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 emotional intelligence is still developing and your your cognitive senses are still developing so mm. the trauma you experience and the hurdles that you have to overcome in that time right. period they really define you as a person yeah. i think oftentimes really creative innovative people who want to change the world do do a lot of good they get stuck and it's it's tough because i mean it's it's you don't you know it's as as you grow older you know you, your opportunities narrow into a certain mm. focus like coming back to sort of the, the the teacher's perspective, and I think that's that's where you get some of the wisest people because then mm-hmm. you get like you get the true masters of their craft, and you get right. the true, you know, the, the people who have been seen decades and decades of of change, and they they have a mm-hmm. really well well rounded understanding of how the world sort of works in different ways, and I think that's amazing. But it's just something I think people and I think that's the type of, of thing like those. Like those types of experiences, those are like those are the things of value, and those are the things that will carry like value into the future, regardless of what happens. Yeah, you know, it, it's like <laughs> we put so much we put so much um, false value on like STEM education or like learning. I don't know, memorizing the periodic table of the elements. Yeah, but it's like. At some point, like, that information isn't going to hold the same value. Or, like, storing that information in your, uh, we'll, we'll say, like, um, uh, biological minds. Yes, you know, maybe yeah, it'll yeah. be in your uh, cyborg mind. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, you know, might not hold the same weight in, in 10, 20, 30 years. But, like, being, you know, being someone with a lot of different experiences who can communicate that well. Someone with a lot of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like... You know, that's, those are the types, those are the types of skills. So how do we build, you know, those, those soft skills, the emotional intelligence skills? Cause that's like, those are the things that are always going to be valuable and that will hold, you know, they'll, 
they'll rise like gold into the next exactly into the next decades. Yeah, and like young people, I mean, ju- just like anybody, but especially young people, like I like I was saying before, they're still in such a development. When I said gold, I meant digital gold <laughs> in the form of Bitcoin. I got it. I got it. <laughs> no, hopefully Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But uh, <laughs> head your bets. Head your bets, kids. Dude, that 2018 run. Let's let's hope for it. <laughs> I, I was talking to Tyler Jones. I want to get him in here to do a whole crypto. Episode. He's like, I need to prepare notes. <laughs> so that'll be a, that'll be a fun one. But but no, like I was saying before, I don't know. Like with with kids being in that developmental stage, going through the education system, kind of tying back to what we were talking about before. I think it's it's just vital when you look. I mean, it's I mean, I work on Twitter a lot, so it's you always see on Twitter uh, people like whenever like their tweet goes viral or something, which is it's rare. So when it happens, it's a big deal. The stereotype is some a kid will always attach their SoundCloud. It'll be like, while you guys are all here, while you while you're all here, check out my SoundCloud, right? Because they're they want to express their craft. You know, it's mm-hmm. usually like whether it's like a hip hop artist or like whatever a songwriter, whatever it is they do. Like that's that's the thing. Like they're they they, they have their passion. You know what I mean? And like then kids are always looking for their passion. They're always looking for their identity. They're putting it in everywhere. They're putting it in their relationships. They're putting it in their craft, and they're very rarely finding it through the traditional education system. And if anything, and if nothing else, like if nothing else at all, I feel like one of the biggest changes that that could be made on that, in that system is just how do you teach kids to take what they're passionate about on a tangible level and then relate that to what they're learning in school? Like how do you mix and mash these skills? Like say you're just really good at talking to people. Like Mm -hmm. you want to talk to people, communicate, well, there's a million job outlets for that. Like you could be a radio broadcaster, you could be a podcaster, mm-hmm. you could be a voice, like you could be a voice um, overdubber, whatever. Like someone who does professional voiceovers. You could. There's there's just so many ways. I feel like that when you ask a kid, what do you love? You know, like what do you want to do? They have answers, and if they don't have answers, that's even sadder because that just mm-hmm. means growing up, no one ever asked them that, or they right. never they didn't have an environment that inspired them to have that so i mean i really think well i think what's you know? sad is nowadays i mean i i my my interpretation is it's it's much easier to be a consumer nowadays um let me rephrase that it's it's natural to become a consumer but it's also it's never been easier to create like it's never been yeah, easier to yeah. like create high quality things like no matter what you're interested in, like the tools aren't far out of your reach to do what you want to do. Like, I mean, I just remember like when I was growing up, like I, I loved drawing and I, all I wanted to do was just, I wanted to draw things that looked like my favorite cartoon characters. Yeah. And like all I had were like crayons when I was really young. And, you know, you can only, you can only get so defined and, and like professional looking with like yeah, a set of crayons, exactly. like it's just not it's not gonna look right. Like you're gonna be disappointed. Nope. Yeah. And it was like you know I wanted I wanted access to like the same tools that like the people who were creating the things that inspired me had. Like you know when I'm reading like Calvin and Hobbes, like I want my drawings to look like uh, Bill Walderson's drawings. Yeah. But yeah. Um, you know the tools aren't always there. Like the skills is one thing. Like you can develop the skills, but like. I didn't always have access to the tools that I needed, but it's like nowadays, like, especially in digital, like where a lot of the content is 
that you're consuming is digitally created, like you can you can create at that same professional level. Like the tool the tools are available to you. You can yeah. take a you know, you can take an iPad and you can make like a Marvel quality comic book if you know what you're doing. Yep. Like the access is there. Like uh Trevor Noah talks about that growing up. Like he he like his his philosophy of education would be I'm I'm putting I'm I'm putting the label of philosophy of education on his words, <laughs> but he, he would agree that um or I hope he would agree <laughs> that like you don't need um you don't necessarily need someone to tell you how to do things. You need access to the materials that you 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 need yep. access to the resources to do what you want to do. Yep. And in his case, like before he was a comedian, he was a DJ and through happenstance he had access to like the equipment that he needed to become a DJ. And yeah, so yeah. he had a, a personal computer at a time when like, you know, in the townships in South Africa, it wasn't easy to find a personal computer. And yeah. he's able to use that to craft his skills as a DJ. And it's like, that's what kids, kids need. They need, they need access to these resources, but then they also need constant reinforcement, both, both positive and negative, um, in their creative pursuits, they need people to encourage them to do the do the things, but then they also need people to challenge them and exactly. tell them like, when, like, hey, this isn't your good work's, enough. Your work's not very good. Yeah, like, you yeah, can that's do huge. a lot better. That's huge. But nowadays, it's like here's a worksheet, like fill in the blanks, or I don't know. I'm speaking to like the general. Yeah, it's just way, more static. Educa- it's more static, yeah. or it's like it's something that a teacher decided, or an administrator decided. Or a business decided you should yeah. learn. Like these businesses who well intentioned will say, like, hey, you're getting a you know, you're getting a STEM center and we're gonna build this room with like these uh high powered calculators or you know, or yeah. like lab tables or whatever. And it's like the kids show up and they're like we we didn't ask for this. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody asked us yeah. what we wanted. This is not helping. <laughs> yeah. So what like I think the ideal learning environment looks like you have people, you know, you have people who care who are trained in you know counseling and therapy skills, um restorative skills who um, have some knowledge of content, but the content isn't as important. Like the content will come, the content's there. Like yeah. you have high quality content from like, you know, whoever you want to learn from, you can learn, you know, whatever you want to learn from the expert yeah. in that field. It's at your fingertips. Grab a but, YouTube tutorial. Yeah. It's all yeah, right there. No doubt. But yeah, no school, school is still, it's, it, it should happen in a building. It should happen with people who care, who are qualified to work and, and develop, character and students but then it should also be there should be a high um a a high a high supply of resources delegated to building a context that makes sense for the students and is designed by the students and the teachers in that place yeah because right now it's like you you know someone decides we need a new school and so we're going to build a state-of-the-art school and plop here it is but it's like who it's good things. It's good intention. But is this what the community wanted? Yeah. Did they want it delivered in this way? Is, did they, you know, did they want the walls to be blue 
or did they want you know the the rooms to be this big like did they, did they want a stem center or did they want like a recording studio like what what did what what did the people who are actually going to be there ask for yeah. and give them more of a say in it and give them the opportunity to create and use those resources and that's that's what you need more of and that's something i don't think you have and so what you have in it, what, what you have happening as a consequence is you have a lot of kids who are growing up with a, a supercomputer in their hands that's going to tailor their interests. It's going to basically tell them what they want because you've got tech companies working around the clock to build the next addictive app or yeah. viral um, computer game. And so you've got this whole generation of kids who are just someone else is telling them what they like. Which is which is sad. I'm not saying I, again. I'm not trying to say this know, is like yeah. every all students. There's generalizing. still lots of creative, yeah, like very thoughtful students. But I'm just saying you're fighting against like a lot of kids who are growing up with like someone else telling them yeah. what they want because and what they want to. There's do. always going to be those kids who are sort of the oddballs and the contrarians and the mm-hmm. rebels and the natural. Yeah. Like they naturally more more so push against what they're told but most kids when you're that age they do just go with the flow mm-hmm. it's not it's not a it's not a mark against kids it's just kids like that's what yeah. kids do like kids learn from their the adults like that's, mm-hmm. that's what society does it's not like it's not to say like every kid learns that way it's not to say every kid is doomed to fall in in lockstep with this with this sort of pattern but that is as a general rule like if you're put in if you're putting the content out there and you're saying this is the way it is, most kids are going to say, okay, that's the way it is. Like, they're not looking to rebel, you know what I mean? Right. And if they do, it's more li- most likely going to be later on. It's going to be – it's not going to be in those crucial de- developmental stages. Mm-hmm. It's going to be later, like, at the end of high school, early college years. Like, it's – you know. And I think, too, like, a lot of what you were saying, I feel like the sort of um, rehabilitation of the education system has to fall in – parallel with just the way communities are restructured and like Mm -hmm. you look at issues like gentrification where i think you know you could you could argue the the um the history of of uh, of motive behind gentrification Mm -hmm. but a lot of people who look at it when you look at like revitalizing you know a town like they they people see it as oh we're gonna like go into these bad areas and fix them up like it's this humanitarian sort of outlook whereas now you know as like decades of attempting this have gone on like we can now see the the repercussions of it and see okay all we've done is we've you know we've pushed these communities into more and into the outskirts and into these more narrow like like close uh um, poor areas and then like mm. the rich areas get richer the poor areas get poorer like it's not it's not this melting pot which i think a lot of people assume would happen right. like when you when you started to rebuild these communities so there's that but i mean I- even in philadelphia like i don't know what i don't know if it's a specific program or if there's been multiple programs tested at this point but i know in philly um there's been attempts at restructuring communities especially like, so to kind of like um combat gentrification where like mm-hmm. people have gone into communities i'm pretty sure mount area is one of the areas or um I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of some of the other like township uh regions or whatever, but there's certain areas of philadelphia where people have gone into them and they've essentially revitalized the park systems and they've revitalized mm-hmm. um like museums and public places and and putting coffee houses and there's a lot of third places where it's really um 
essentially gone up against the traditional understanding of how gentrification would work. And it's brought these communities of black, white, Latino, et cetera, races and, and, um, and classes together in a more, I guess, um, societally productive way where people are living amidst each other in a more, you know, like healthy, cool way. Whereas, right. and, that, and I think that as, the, as we restructure, we talk about the restructuring of education, like that's a huge part because I mean, we like, that's a, there's a guy, his name's a uh, Johan Hari. He's doing a book tour right now. It's, he's gone around a bunch of podcasts and, and he wrote this book called uh, Chasing the Scream a few years ago, which was about uh, changing the conversation on addiction. And his new book is a, a similar concept on changing the conversation on depression. Hmm. And he, he goes back a lot of what his, um, his studies have, have the studies he's done are a lot of new, new takes on old studies where he gets groups of scientists together or, or finds groups of scientists that have already done these studies who go into like the one famous one that he did, which was, um, I'm not sure when it was done. It might've been the fifties, the sixties where they did a test on lab rats to, um, test on the effects of addiction with opiates. So they had like taken uh, a lab rat and put it in a cage and it had the choice between like it's normal water and then it's opiate water and it would choose the opiate water mm -hmm. every time. So it was like, okay, like we know that like, like people, I mean, they take that over to people then. It's like, okay, people are more naturally addicted to opiates. Like if they have a choice, they're going to do the drugs. This is what drugs right. are bad, blah, blah, blah. Like it was very basic and elementary at the time. Whereas now they've redone that study and they've taken the same concept where they've taken the cage. They, they call it like rat rat park or like rat paradise or something like that right and they take the rats they have a bunch of them They're, they take that rat put it with a bunch of other rats and they have a bunch of activities like wheels and games and balls or whatever they can play with then they have the same water system there one has opiates and one's normal water and the rats don't drink the opiate water at like any mm -hmm. it's if they if they do drink it it's at such a minuscule rate like it's basically nullified so the idea is that so much of what we teach in addiction is environmental. Like we're taught, we're taught in mental health as a whole that it's biological. And like once you're, once you, once you're biologically given this disease, like you are now doomed. You're going to be an addict. You're going to be an alcoholic. You're going to be depressed. Like, and what we're, I guess, what his work is trying to, um, to show is that it's not always that black and white. That in most of these cases, there's a large environmental and, and just in general social. Uh, factor that's often neglected that we see with these cases of uh, gentrification versus community rebuilding, where when you rebuild, when you put the efforts and the money into rebuilding a community and like you put the resources there where people can come together, mm -hmm. it actually works. We just, it's, it's, we're way more afraid to do that. I think it's like society is way more afraid to do it. Like communities don't want to entwine. It's like black community or what I should say primarily white communities don't want to entwine with black communities. There is a vice versa there, but it's obviously it's a class issue on a lot of scales where it's like there's it that there's a tendency for white uh, neighborhoods to move out versus like Right. But you know, I think that I the impression I get is that that is starting to change. Yeah, me too. People like yeah. people like to be in environments with people who are different than them. They it's um you know, you could even say it's trendy or hip it now is. to be part of a diverse community. But th where that breaks down is education again. Yep. Because it's trendy and hip until you've got to send your kids to a failing school. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's like all these failing schools are concentrated in the urban areas of of the U.S. And so, you know, you as as a parent who has means, it's like, 
you're not like if you care about your kids, you you're not going to send them. Of course, to, if you're to a middle class white school, parent, like, yeah, you're not, you're gonna, not sending your kids. You're there. not going to do that. Yeah, you won't. So live you're going to outsource. You're going to go to a private school or yep. a, you know one of the top tier, like one of the selective public schools, exactly. the, the uh, admit schools where you know you have to pass a certain criteria to get in. So it's um, I, it really does come back to you know reshaping the way education is done because i think a lot of those i think a lot of those problems with gentrification can like they can be alleviated by you know some of the techniques that you're talking about but it's um you know it only it only goes so far when yeah well they need each other because you're talking about like those kids like your students like the kids that are coming in they're coming from broken communities so you know what i mean so it's like if if you're if you're raised in a community that's completely devastated, there's mm. no jobs in your local neighborhood, like your dad's a crack dealer or your dad's in jail and your mom's mm. working a bunch of part-time jobs and mm. all your friends are dealing drugs, doing drugs, like, et cetera. Like if that's the environment and that's, uh, again, obviously that's like the generalized um, outlook at this, at this lower class level. But Right. If and that's, it's, yeah. And I know, and I, I, I know what you're saying. I just want to like preface that by saying like, you know, you can you can say broken communities from some of those aspects, but there's also like lots of, you know, there's lots of positives and good things that come out of it, as well. I'm just talking about like a, like people always want to like, you know, yeah, take you the rescue mindset, exactly. but like, and you're just e- extracting like all the bad things of it, and you know, a lot of those wanna... communities are super tight. And like they're right. really, really like it's a, it, the community mm-hmm. is like a family, and they yeah. all know each other, and like they all they all play sports together, and they help each other with meals, and it's really yeah, you're totally right. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to paint the an overarching like negative theme on that, but I do want to like right. I, when, when talking in the I context, understand. yeah, you know what I'm I talking about. What no, you're I, no, I appreciate you like shining that shedding that light on that aspect of it because I'm I guess trying to 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 speak more to the the perspective of opportunity or mm-hmm. like, like if there's not right. if you're in a community where there right. is no opportunity and those are the opportunities. Like if, mm-hmm. if the opportunities are in drugs, which is, which is what you get, the more you gentrify, the more you push these people to the margins, that's what mm-hmm. you get. Cause they don't have a local economy to work with them and the economies that they do have to work with them, they have to travel far away and they're going to be profiled. And there's all these other like decks stacked against them, you know? Right. So that when, when all that is the way it is, obviously like education on its own when a guy like you who's got hopes and and vision for how to help kids if that's like just the the outlook that these kids have as a as a general rule like if they don't see the opportunity they don't see the the um the outward like hope i guess is what i'm saying like you need you need the two to work together like you need you need the communities to be rebuilding you need the state and the cities to actually put the funding into rebuilding those communities and bring in the different classes and the races together to work together. And then, yeah, you need the funding and education to go into a more, I guess, streamlined, productive way to, to push these, these kids into a field that actually has tangible um, results for their career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Versus just putting numbers and, like we've been saying, content in front of them. Right. That all sounds very nice, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be a pipe dream? Yeah, that's that's like a hopeful futurism, but um, more more hopeful than I'm used to. Yeah, well, it just doesn't well you because you see the money. I mean, when you when you watch the money come into these these uh 
settings, you realize just how how far off far off the mark it is, you know, from right. from getting to where we need to get. Yeah, well, people get wrapped up in the in the concepts, and you know, you have a lot of people who study these issues in depth, and they propose solutions, but you know, it always it it comes back to. Um, uh, Dewey, an educational philosopher, like he, he always says, like, um, education is a social problem. It's it's something that needs to be approached from a social perspective, and you need people with emotional intelligence who who really know the people who are involved, because like you can't make you can't make any progress until you know you actually know the people and know the the context that you're trying to, it's, they're all different. And it's yeah, all, yeah. And, and I think the other problem is like, um, the quote, the quote I've, I've heard before is like, um, every, every complex problem has a solution that's clear, simple and wrong. <laughs> and it's like, that's the, a great quote. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, um, and, it, and it's so true in, um, in the context of education, because it just seems like there's there's clear, simple answers to this. Like, yeah. just give better, you know, give better curriculum and make the kids do it. Just make them do it. Make them yeah. comply. And if they don't comply, we'll punish them. Yeah. Or then you have the other side that's just like, all right, just like let them, you know, let them do what they want to do. But um, there's no, but there's also not, um, you know, there's no buy-in. It's just like we're gonna start a school, and we're just you, you know you get a computer, and you're gonna do things on your computer, yeah. and like do just do technology stuff, <laughs> and like but there's like there's no there's no real buy-in, there's no investment, like yeah. you know people who make addictive apps know that like to get a consumer really to really engage, you need them to invest something, and like you know sometimes that's money, like you 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 download like one of those you know free apps but then it's like to keep playing you've got yep. to pay some money yep. and then once you paid yeah perfect. once you bought a new shield you're not going to stop like yeah. for invested money in this yeah but it's like it's same for education like you need you need more you need more of an investment otherwise it's not going to mean anything to you it's just like this is a place that i have to go to and i have to learn these things and if i don't do it then you know someone's going to punish me for it or I don't know. It's just the, the whole, the whole philosophy behind it needs to be adjusted. And I I just, I don't, I believe that it's, it's hopeless right now. Like the way things stand, it's hopeless for things to really change. Mm -hmm. Like I think you can experiment and you can find like little successes, but for things to really change on a large scale, um, I just, it's, my, I mean, and that's where my interest in futurism comes in is I think the workplace changing and just like society changing because of, you know, the job market just being turned on its head is yeah. going to, you know, that, that is what's going to, you know, make things change. Not us coming up with some like new, cool educational philosophy. Exactly. Cause, Cause that's just rearranging the furniture. Yeah. We could talk all day about new systems of being, but those systems <laughs> just become the old systems in a couple of years. That's right. just how systems work. Right. I mean, everything you just said applies to what I do. I mean, working in marketing, it's like I went to a conference a couple of months ago, which is a huge conference called Social Media World. 
Worlds Conference. It's in San Diego. Like 5,000 people are there. and the San whole, Diego. San Diego, baby. But the whole thing, it's based upon, like, there's millions and millions of dollars put into this thing. You have all these huge names, these big speakers that come in. There's a bunch of the panels and, and uh, talks, and people are taking notes, and everybody there, you know, they, they either work at an agency or a marketing firm or whatever, or they're an entrepreneur trying to figure stuff out. Right. And everything, almost, I, should, I shouldn't say everything, because there are some true innovators that I, that I met and saw that really did spark some um, some of the good juice like that we're talking about here, but the overwhelming majority of what was the content that was given there was just that it was content. It was literally mm -hmm. like teaching a classroom of students. It was them talking at you. It was basically yeah. saying, "Oh, you want to become successful at Google AdWords or Facebook marketing right. or whatever, or being like a brand on Twitter. Yeah. This is what you have to do." And all of it is so just detached, and it's so like you said, it's a simple solution to a complex problem because that's what sells and that's what generally like it goes back to the tony robbins methodology it's like right. it's this sort of people need motivation people yep. need simplicity yeah. like they don't want to put the time and the nuance into the actual solutions that will uproot everything like they just want to be told what to do and what what when they're told what to do they get to pass it on like i'm talking about career now so like outside of education but it's still education because you still a lot of these people are getting paid by their employer to get notes and mm -hmm. stuff from this up and you know this new cutting edge uh, conference. So it's like the same exact thing. It's like you get what you thought you needed, you bring it back to your workplace, you share it with your boss, your coworkers, and now nothing really changes. Like the the system in place isn't changing. Like you've literally rearranged some things, and you're right. probably not going to be if if you are any more successful. It's probably not going to be because of, any, of anything you learned there. It's probably just going to be because for like a, a moment, you're you're on your you got you have the high. You're on fire from the actual like it's like it's like a retreat. It's like a right. meditation retreat or whatever. It's like people get a high from going to these group activities and mm -hmm. feeling like they're part of a tribe. And then you come <laughs> you come back and then implement these like good big ideas. And if anything, it just sort of it motivates the group to sort of rearrange some stuff. But it doesn't change anything like if you want to change it you need a guy like elon musk to come in and just blast an industry mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it forces everybody to change like you need you, like like with ai it's like you need something to come in and force the, all the pieces from the top to the bottom to move because like if anything else that we we can sit here all day and talk about i think this is the solution like the money needs to go here but all of that's doing is just rearranging the furniture like it's really it's just gonna be more of the same even if it changes for a year it'll just go right back right you know it's just it's really the the com yeah you need complex solutions for these complex problems and it's just it's something uh, when it comes down to money when it comes down to people's careers and and the the constant turning wheels of capitalism it's like this is something that the the real solutions aren't heard in right. an economic uh to set in you know because right. like they just they aren't pragmatic like the only it's like any real change like when you talk about changes cultures make just in general it's like anytime a culture goes through any substantial shift like through whatever it is like enlightenment or whatever there's always tragedy there's always revolution there's always famine there's always some you hmm. know burning of the heretics there's there's a craziness and a chaos that comes 
anytime you want to uproot something. And that's what we're all avoiding. <laughs> that's right. what all the executives, the CEOs, the people with the money, <laughs> the bankers, the everybody, even the teachers, like yeah. everybody's avoiding this because we know when it comes, there's only going to be a few people like, like the Elon Musk's, like the tech people. There's only going to be a few of us that really have the tools and the general understanding to to sort of ride the wave, whereas a lot of people are going to get swept off their surfboard. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the that's the negative view. I I still would I still would argue that there's there's a lot of opportunity for that not to happen, and for a lot of people to really benefit from this. Yeah. Um, I mean, just I mean, just look. Well, at me too. Sorry, I'm just I'm speaking. This is why I'm I'm trying to say this is what the perspective that the people that turn this wheel. That's the perspective they have. Obviously, I'm like whatever. Go f- like sweet right. chain revolution, awesome. But that's the I think that's why there's a lot of reluctance to make those changes because the people there's a lot at stake for the people that have skin in the game. You know. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah, there's a lot I'm of... I'm more hopeful, too. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not it's attacking e- it's you. Easy, it's easy to... It's, it is easy to... Nate, we're in this together. <laughs> when, when the revolution your comes, side. we're going to be... I'll call you. Yeah. We can... I'm on your side until, like, a, a, a solar flare hits the atmosphere and knocks out our electricity. Dude, and, like, even then, you can come. I'll have canned food. It'll be fun. Yeah. You can come over. I'll have a shotgun. I'll <laughs> take all your food. You can kill me and my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. After watching A Quiet Place. Oh, was, man. Stop. That was I, so good. One of my favorite movies in recent memory. I saw it I, I saw it in a packed theater, and at one point in the movie, uh, someone in the audience got up to go to the bathroom, and they, like, tripped down the stairs no. and made a loud noise, <laughs> and, like, the entire theater gasped and looked at them. <laughs> but, But the best part, was the person who like kind of fell when the audience looked at them they like they like struggled to recover and mm-hmm. made more noise and like they the person <laughs> who fell the reaction was like oh no like i've i've awoken the creature like yeah. we're like we are all going to die now yeah and then there's like this moment where like in the movie like we were yeah and then we were taken out of the movie and we're like no wait he just fell it's yeah fine. he fell it's okay that's then we insane. all went back to the movie oh such a good movie wow <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm sorry. Like, I just can't get over Jim just just (laughs) getting slaughtered at the end. Stop. Stop. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) I mean, getting (laughs) awarded. Honestly, dude. Getting awarded. I'm all about spoiler alerts when it's, like, the first week of a movie. Anything after that, I'm like, screw off. I I, I didn't even know it was in theaters anymore. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, but, like, there's always that person who's, like, it's a month or, like, two weeks after an episode of a show airs. They're like, spoilers! It's like, dude, the show is, the episode was two weeks ago. What are we, like, four hours into this? If you made it this far (laughs) and... That is the and that oh, is your biggest so problem with this. It's then. so late. <laughs> oh man. I feel well. like when you're like when you're like a big name, like I'll listen to podcasts that are like three hours long. Yeah. When it's like No one's gonna listen to this. I don't know. For three hours. If, like, if anyone listens to this at and it makes it to this point, you yeah. need to DM me on Twitter, I will mail you Stakeum coupons. How many? <laughs> Two. <laughs> $10 worth it's of $10 worth of If anyone of makes it, and wait, the cut, there's got to be a cutoff date because I don't, what if, you know, what if this podcast takes off in a month and then everybody comes back and listens to this and it's like getting yeah. my coupons? The cutoff date is uh, June 15th. Totally arbitrary date that I just picked out of my head. So, 
By June 15th, if anyone makes it to this point, you can DM me on Twitter. 2018 in the 2018. year of our Lord. Yes, 2018, because God knows this podcast will get archived and people will look back at how yeah. stupid these two idiots sounded in 2018 yeah. trying to... <laughs> well, just think, everyone every, everyone in our, um, in, our, in our family from this point on will likely have have the ability to listen to this oh so my God, like, it's we're so talking weird. about like our kids our grandkids great grandkids yeah like as long as there's no like grid what do you call it like like the grid doesn't get knocked out which i don't think it will because everything's underground unless i mean yeah. i guess it's possible but who knows yeah. who knows who knows but as long as the grid who knows where up, the googles are keeping all their information these seriously days. Just, who, yeah seriously who does know who knows Hopefully, dude. I hope this stuff stays around. Even if it, even if this is a recording where like grandkids or whatever look back and it's like that grandpa was an idiot. Like, like I want that. Yeah. Because of course you want that. Like it's just I was talking to Nelson, our, our friend Nelson, about this the other day. It's like so much of how we look at our own parents and their parents. Like you look at them through their, the lens of their failures, and it's like as when you're young, you think, oh, mom and dad are the worst because of these reasons. But you get older, and you think. That's how you learn. You right. learn through their, all they are was they were grown up children problem solving the best they could, which is all we're doing now. We're just a bunch of older dummies trying to grasp these complex topics that we just scratch the surface on the best we can, and that's it. You pass it on. Let it be known that Nathan Allabach is using GarageBand and the stock <laughs> compression tool to record this podcast. So. This is, can this only is, get better from here. Serious, this is this is ground level. <laughs> How but, dare you expose me? Mike yeah. just like peered over at the laptop. He's like, "What are we looking at? What are we using?" Yeah, I don't. I don't even have logic. This is the the ground level of ground podcasting. Level. You gotta start somewhere. It's like yeah. when the Beatles were like playing squires and epiphones. Yeah, that's us. This All is right, my so squire. Whatever the epiphone was of um of uh um. Oh shoot! The squire of Epiphone. No, no, no. I was, I was thinking of uh, Rick and Bacher. What's Rick and Bacher's oh, squire? I have no idea. I'm such a dummy when it comes to music. Yeah. Who knows? Hey, let's talk about sports before we go. Okay. <laughs> because that's how you know. That's how you know the, the podcast is, is that's dumb. You, that should be it. That should be like your thing. Like, <laughs> you know, talk, instead like, of like talking about something serious or spiritual, it's yeah. like we talk about sports. It's like you do a whole episode on something like the future of education that just ends like so. The Eagles. <laughs> yeah, we really fizzled out there. Yeah, we did. That's that's. I think that's that's how you know the first the first few of these are just gonna go. Yeah. Okay. Like, perfect. E A G. L E S Eagles. You can just do that anywhere now, yeah. and people will respond. I'll put that in the uh, intro to this podcast. That'll be like the soundbite, <laughs> just that with some music. So you can guarantee it. no one will make it to this point. Yeah, in the podcast, definitely. D, well, thanks for hanging out and uh, sure. sh- like dropping those knowledge bombs and for conversing about very important topics that aren't conversed about enough. Of course. It's my pleasure. It was awesome. All right, everybody. Peace. Keep it crispy. (laughs) 